Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that this week definitely has real six-pack abs. And no, it's not just stencils and CGI. I'm your host, Joe Cunningham, and joining me are... James Hunt. Williamson. Stephen Carty. Stephen, thank you for... I forget these other guys. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been a fan of the show for years. It's it's it, at the risk of sounding like the biggest nerd in the world. It's it's become like a sort of tradition. So when I watch a superhero movie, I then go back and listen to what you guys have to say about it. So yeah, glad to be here. That is a very kind compliment. I can never listen to any of our old episodes. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I've almost never listened to any back. <laughs> I'm glad other people do. But I do I, I do have that with other podcasts that I'll be like, oh, didn't that podcast record an episode in that thing and then and then dig it out? Um, so, Stephen, you are uh, you're a film critic. You're a, f- a freelance film critic. You write for places like the Radio Times and, um, and BBC Radio Scotland. Yes, um, Radio <laughs> Times for about te- 10 years and then BBC Radio Scotland for about eight years, yes. So um, various other places before that. Uh, we were talking before we came on air that our sort of paths crossed or almost crossed when you were at Empire. I was there around the same yeah. time. Yeah, um, I get writing writing whatever whatever morsels that we could get our grubby little paws on, I think. Yeah, that's it. Diving for the leftovers at the at the bottom of the trough, but happy to get them. <laughs> they, still, they still never had me, you know. Really? 12, 12 years I wrote about films, never once got a picture of Empire. You were uh, Den, of, Den of Geek, James, is that right? I, w- I was Den of Geek for, <laughs> for my sins, yeah. Den, Den of Geek was. was one of the places that I couldn't uh, couldn't get my toes into. <laughs> That's always the way, isn't there? There's always somewhere you just can't crack. I mean, it was it was most places for me that didn't answer the call. That's why I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? You're, you're talking to two people that don't do this anymore, so yeah. the they didn't get into most places, and then they stopped doing it. We commission ourselves to make a podcast every fortnight. <laughs> yeah, I worried about that joke. It's not, it's not working out. <laughs> those, Disney, those Disney checks have been drying up since they heard our Falcon and Winter episodes. <laughs> Um, Stephen, for our listeners to get you get to know you a little bit, um, can you tell us a bit about your relationship with superheroes and comic book movies? Are you are you like me that movies is the way in, or are you like James? You have a, a comics background. 
Um, yeah, sure. So when I was young, I read comics. I grew up with um, Frank Miller, The Dark Knight Returns, and um, The Man Without Fear, the Daredevil film. Uh, probably my favorite graphic novel of all time is, um, James, I don't want you to judge me on this, is uh, <laughs> The Man of Steel by John Byrne. I just think that's a timeless, mm, timeless, yes, successful one. That's a good classic choice. Seb would have definitely approved of that. I think that's how I actually met Seb. We were talking about that online, um, just both sort of mutually appreciating it. Uh, I did that. I did that terrible thing where I became a, a teenager and then thought I was too cool for comics and went <laughs> off them for a few years. But then I got a job working in a place where Forbidden Planet was next door, and let me tell you, that was bad for the wallet. <laughs> I was in there every second day, and I discovered um, Bendis's Ultimate Spider-Man run, and then. Uh, Jeff Loeb's sort of Batman v Superman run, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, I was buying, I was buying a six issue graphic novel every sort of third day, and I thought I've got to rein this in somehow. <laughs> and it's it's really weird now looking at how comics are cool now. Well, maybe maybe cool is the wrong word, but comic culture is cool now. Everyone knows who Tony Stark is. Everyone knows who Green Lantern is. And when I was growing up at high school, you just you didn't admit it if you read this stuff. You, you'd go home and do it in your room in private, and now it's now it's so mainstream. I would have this isn't a comic, this is pornography, honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. And it's it's so different now, the amount of shows, the amount of content. I mean, when I was young, and this is just showing my age, when I was young, you had the Incredible Hulk TV show with Bill Bixby. You had the, <laughs> Fla- the Flash show with uh, John Wesley Ship. Mm. Uh, you had the Reeve movies, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, and that was pretty much your lot. And now there's just there's there's almost too much now. I, I can't keep up with it now. There's there's some shows I haven't even investigated yet. There's there's shows I've started and not finished. It's it must be great to be a kid now and be into superheroes. The amount of stuff you've got to choose from is is fantastic. I, I remember I knew I knew that comics had turned the tide when my coworkers were talking about Thanos without involving me. <laughs> when when they could have that conversation independently of me, I was like, okay, the nerds have won. <laughs> I mean, even even us presenting this podcast, <clears throat> there are superhero comic book TV shows that exist that you know that I, I like didn't even know were coming, or, <laughs> or, or or you know like we were just discussing before this record, Modok dropping on Disney Plus this weekend, and like where's that come from? Like with no with no kind of like fanfare or whatever, but Modok has a has a Disney Plus animated show now. It's yeah. <laughs> Heaven help us yeah, yeah. if you me, if you can't do it. Like if you don't like comic books or superheroes, it is becoming increasingly hard to escape. <laughs> for me, it was the it, for me it was Krypton. I feel like that. I've got a, a cute memory of like of, of five years before that show existed. I would have I would have said, oh, well, I'll, I'll be obsessed with that, and I'll watch every episode. And then yeah. five years later, yeah. it, it exists. I, it, I think maybe there are multiple seasons. I couldn't. I mean, I've never seen an episode. Never wanted to see an episode. Couldn't tell who was in it or how long it ran for. And it's about frigging Krypton, you know. But that's where we are. Yeah. I remember, and I don't know if any of you guys have ever watched the show or like the show, but I remember being ridiculously, embarrassingly excited for the first episode of Lois and Clark. When that came on TV, I was sitting there like, "This is the biggest thing ever—a Superman TV show." And I still, I, I still like the first season of that. It's, it's good, but I, I wonder if there's something to that. Less is more, you know. Back in the day when when we were starved of this stuff, you were so excited about. It. I remember going to see Batman Forever in the cinema, and I don't know if you guys have seen it recently, but there's the line when um, Bruce Wayne something says something about the circus is halfway to Metropolis by now. 
I remember sort of cheering, going, "Oh, he's talking about he's talking about Metropolis, <laughs> Superman." I'm I'm the only person here that gets that, but now everyone gets that, and now everything's connected. Now there's now there's like multiverses and shit. It's like it's not just there's not there's there's not just one Metropolis. There's like a hundred, you know, as <laughs> yeah. a spin-off from that Batman property. Not crazy. As as I think we mentioned on the last episode, we have two movies starring Michael Keaton racing towards a multiverse. Like there's like who's who's gonna get to the multiverse first? It turns out it's Marvel, but mm-hmm. that, yeah, mm-hmm. it's crazy. I mean, did, did you remember that Morbius? Yeah, Michael Keaton's in the Morbius trailer. Is he? <laughs> What? Yeah. What? Oh yeah, that was that was yeah. like a twist. I'd forgotten this yeah. as well. I rewatched yeah. the trailer a couple of weeks ago. I was like, oh, yeah, Michael Keaton oh, yeah. was in this trailer. Oh, now I, I can't can... worry about that. <laughs> I can't hear the word Morbius without thinking about. Did, did anyone watch the Amazing Spider-Man cartoon with the cool theme tune at the start yeah. in the nineties? Yeah. That one. <laughs> Um, Morbius was a recurring character in that, I think, he and they always used to play this sort of creepy Transylvanian music every time he appears. And <laughs> he didn't—he was a vampire who didn't bite people because of Saturday morning cartoon restrictions. So he used to suck people's stop- life force using his hands yeah. instead. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. Okay. <laughs> so uh, today we will be discussing Zack Snyder's 2007 <clears throat> Frank Miller adaptation, 300. But before any of that, I'm going to ask James to explain the comic book concept that I just don't understand. James, who or what is a Dark Hawk? A Dark Hawk? <laughs> uh, so Dark Hawk was a sort of 90s superhero, slightly popular slightly before I was reading comics. Like I was, I was sticking only to X-Men at that time of the 90s. So I don't have a great knowledge of Dark Hawk purely because he sort of fell out of favor and never they never really caught it again. Um, it's Marvel, right? I, yeah, yeah, sorry, a Marvel character. I believe they're bringing him back or bringing the character back with a new sort of secret identity and stuff. It's like a, a new Dark Hawk is going to be taking over, right? He sounds very 90s. He like, is extremely 90s like, in both design and concept. So what are we saying? Fly? Are we saying are we saying solo fly, movie? Yes, are we saying Disney Plus series? Are we saying uh, a- animated spin-off? What what's what, where's he going? I think we're saying six issues then cancelled. <laughs> Never spoken of again. Yeah. I think he's just I think he's a space guy as well, James. Oh yeah, yeah. Um that's why I think it might be an alien armor. But I'm not mm. like I said, I'm not hundred percent. Any chance, um, any chance they're bringing him back in comics because they've got, uh, they're going to, I don't know, stick him in the background of a I, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 scene? It seems more likely to me that they're throwing the idea out there because I believe the new Dark Hawk is going to be black. Oh, and I okay. think they went, well, we've got this piece of IP. Can we, rather than trying to come up with a new character from scratch, can we sort of graft the concept onto, you know, onto a new person so that we can try and get some mileage out of this otherwise dead ip which it sounds like they've done quite a few times over the years yeah not not with dark hawk but with no no but with with like with character names to just go okay should we just try again with this name because the the name let's let's renew the trademark and see if we can get some you know get some saleable content out of it and then you look at Venom, you look at, you know, Venom is like the 90s character and at least in the film versions, that's proving to be successful, perhaps. You know, <laughs> maybe, they, maybe they're maybe they looking at some of, some of these 90s characters. Yeah. 
Okay. I'm, I'm not optimistic, put it that way. Yeah. You've not you've not sold me on Dark Oak, James, I've got to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wrong before. If you want to know about Dark Oak, I would say there's a recent episode of House to Astonish where they they reviewed his uh, his anniversary one shot. And they clearly know a lot more about uh, Dark Hawk than mm-hmm. I do. <laughs> okay, uh, so we'll move on now to the comic book movie and TV news section. Um, and we're going to start off on TV with um, some animated projects. Um, James, I'm going to start with the one that I think got you the most um, animated. Um Mm. HBO Max are um, teaming up with Cartoon Network um, to create a new animated series called Batman Caped Crusader. Um, the interesting thing about this is, is rather than the, you know, the, the fact that there's going to be a Batman animated show, is the three people who were announced as being collaborators on this. So there is Matt Reeves, who's directing the new Batman movie. There is... J.J. Uh, Abrams, who, um, I, I don't know, needs a little introduction. And then you've got um, <laughs> Bruce Tim, who was uh, one of the key figures on the 90s uh, Batman the Animated series. Um, it, we, we already know that there's an HBO Max show coming that is um, that's doing the, the kind of, what, it's like Gotham PD, isn't it? And they're also mm-hmm. developing Justice League Dark still. So this is like the latest move. Um, what do we think about a, a, another Batman animated series? I, I'm not sure though that in my head I can square the collaborators on this to to really figure out what it's going to be. No, I mean the, I look at that and I go, "What's JJ Abrams going to do on this? More than write some ideas on a napkin? I don't know." <laughs> His son might write it. Quite. Um, <laughs> could Abrams? Could Abrams be? You know, could they be trying? Because it's interesting. You know, he's obviously involved in the first. It was the Justly Dark show. Then this. Then the Tarnahazi Coates Superman mm-hmm. movie. Now this. Are they? You know, are they? Is he the Feige there? Is that what they want? Is that what he wants? Is that what's happening? It's possible. Um, I don't know. The thing is, I haven't ever watched a Batman cartoon series so i've not got a lot to contribute to the idea of this um <laughs> steven well, well, did you ever, bring, did you ever steven, watch any based on what steven said in the first five minutes of the show i'm imagining he's watched a lot of animated batman over the years <sighs> yes i have yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um i think the uh, the lineup there is reasonably encouraging I'd, I'd have to wait to see who they cast as the voice of batman because that to me is is crucial i mean kevin conroy you hear his voice, you think Batman. I, I don't know about you guys, but I loved um, uh, Robocop. What's his name? Peter Weller. When Peter Weller voiced Batman on the Dark Knight Returns animated film, mm-hmm. his voice was just... You need, you need for Batman, you need a certain kind of voice. You need a voice that's going to instill fear in you know, 20, 20 goons in a room. You need someone whose voice can break concrete. So that, that to me, is crucial, whoever they cast as Batman. I like... Did you say... What was his name? Uh, Bruce Tim. did you say, is involved? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that's quite encouraging. I did I did used to like the show, and uh, Matt Reeves. I've I've liked what I've seen so far about the Batman. I think I'm sort of quietly optimistic about that. So I don't know, quiet quietly optimistic maybe going forward. It's just I I think it's interesting to try and figure out what it's 
going to be because it mm. like bringing in Bruce Tim suggests you want to capture the kind of the magic of that 90s TV show. And the, the logo is very 90s Batman Adventures yes. or whatever it was called, yeah. And then your Matt Reeves of it suggests, well, maybe this, you know, maybe what's going on is that they're building out the the universe of the Batman movie. Because we know that this, the Arbats movie is not DC Extended Universe. It's its own thing. Mm-hmm. And so maybe this is, and as, as you suggested, Reese, with... Um, with J.J. Abrams as well, maybe there is some kind of, you know, like, oh, here is a fresh area of this universe that maybe we can do something with, that maybe we can start to build out, make our own, and kind of shape the future direction of DC screen properties. Because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of stuff starting to take shape around this Batman movie. And yeah, it is, it is interesting that after... T- pitching his tent up at Warner Brothers, that J.J. Abrams is gravitating towards these superhero projects. I was just going to ask how you guys feel about J.J. in general. What Do you guys like him in general? Are you encouraged by him in general? <laughs> James? I would say I do not like him in general. Right. I like him most when he's working on things like Star Wars that I have no interest in. Right, okay. I, I, I'm much more positive, um, and that comes from a base point of, you know, fucking adoring lost and that pilot that he directed um i i think the most frustrating thing about all of this is like you know you you look at jj abrams's career as as a director and you know who knows what he's going to want to direct next but like it started off with directing the third mission impossible movie and then directing the 14th and 15th Star Trek movies, or 13th and 14th Star Trek movies, and then the 10th and 11th or 12th Star Wars movies. You know, it's like, here is a guy that was like the self-styled Spielberg of his generation, and he's become a franchise guy. And I mean, I I think the best stuff that Abrams has done has been the stuff he did like off his own back. Yeah, but And that's why I sort of, I don't like him... But super spend eight. you all this time on on franchises and stuff because they, I don't know, like his Star Trek stuff and his Star Wars stuff has been broadly not great. I did anyone read them? Um, the did anyone read his... The first Star Trek's fine. Yeah. Did anyone read that script he wrote for Superman years ago? Flyby. We went. <laughs> we went through on our Superman Returns episode in like excruciating detail the the what that was going to be. But yeah, it, it speaks to, doesn't it, like that he's interested in this in this corner of things. So maybe it's maybe it's genuine interest and fandom, but it's also I don't know, it does it does make me wonder if he's just cynically going, I need to be involved in this superhero stuff. I'm one of the biggest guys in Hollywood and I haven't touched it really yet. So yeah, give me a slice of that pie. I just wonder if it's DC or Warner's or whoever saying that we need that Feige. We need that. We need someone to oversee all this stuff. We need someone who's got mm. a, a track record. And I wonder if he's maybe an obvious choice given what he did with <laughs> Star Wars. Maybe he's the only choice. I mean, how, you, how, how <laughs> I do mean, you find a? How do you find a Feige? You don't. They, when you say what he did with Star Wars, <laughs> is that the kind of thing you look at? You look at what someone did with Star Wars and go. Yeah, this this sort of cancelled creative direction. That's what we need for our own <laughs> superhero universe. It's uh, I don't know. Like I'm I'm not a Star Wars fan, so I'm not the best person to speak on it. But I think you know 
what he did with Force Awakens was a huge success. You know, re- regardless of what you think about yeah. the movie, it reignited the passion for that franchise in terms of you know people just thinking that that good Star Wars movies could be made again, and it pushed yeah. all of the buttons that viewers wanted pushing, and. You know, it was, yeah, it's, it's like, I think it's still the second highest grossing film of all time at the US box office. Like, that's, it's crazy. Um, hmm. And, um, and, and yeah, and the, the third one's a mess, but, you know, is that him or is that the, is that Lucasfilm? I, I don't know. But I, I, I actually do think that more of a kind of backseat creative, I think the Feige role would suit him quite well, to be honest. Because I think he does tend to have a have a good sense of what audiences want, mm-hmm. and also you know, and also he's got that TV history. You know, in some ways, mm. these 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 new roles, the you know the Feige role, it's 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 closer maybe to like a TV showrunner in some ways because yeah, you, you can't be you can't be in the nitty gritty of every episode slash you know MCU film. You're across two you're across two you're sort of you need to have your eyeballs on too much stuff to be quite in the, in the, in the bones of it. And, and JJ Abrams has, you know, he was a proper TV guy before he was a movie guy. Like, you know, yeah. Alias was um, great. I don't know if any of you guys watched Alias, but I, I did. I watched all of Alias, even the insane second, uh, third and fourth series. Oh, with Arvin clone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the I really, with- I did enjoy Alias. That's, that's a fair point, mm-hmm. but it was a long time mm-hmm. ago. My concern Fringe was good. Lost was great, you know. I mean, I, I mean, my concern with something like my concern with something like this is that his Star Trek and Star Wars, like for the first two, he went, okay, I'm going to do the greatest hits, and then for the second, he just went, oh, I don't know, what's left? I'll do that. You see, right. So, so I would, I would flip that, James, and say what he's been really good about with the franchises that he has walked into is got is to have kind of like gone how do I remind people about why they love this thing in the first place? And let's try and bring that to mind again. And if he does that with the likes of Batman and Superman, I mean, are are there, are there two properties that more, you know, need (laughs) audiences to remember what they liked about them in the first place? But that was a fair point. You know, so if he, if he can walk into that Superman project and alongside Tanahasi Coates kind of shepherd in this movie that, pushes all of the buttons that the Christopher Reeve movie did back in the, in the seventies, then, you know, that, that would be a huge win. Yeah. As long as he taps out after one then, <laughs> but then maybe, but you know, again, he's not directing. So <laughs> who knows what, what will happen when he's, you know, more of a, a shepherd for these projects. Yeah, it's impossible to understate the importance of a good shepherd. I mean, the MCU would not be the MCU without Kevin Feige. You could have mm-hmm. the same directors, the same writers, the same talent. You could have Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth. You could have all the same people. But without Feige, it doesn't work. You need that person to keep everything in line and connected and, and running and working. Hmm. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Um, also an- announced alongside this is... Um, that there is also going to be a Superman animated series called My Adventures with Superman, uh, which will follow Clark Kent and Lois Lane in their 20s. And we'll have Jack Quaid, uh, him off, off of The Boys and um, you know, son of um, Dennis Quaid. He will be uh, voicing Superman and Alice Lee will voice uh, Lois. Um, so I think that the, the main takeaway from that is... Um, 
whilst I think the the Batman one is the is probably going to be the big tentpole here, that maybe HBO has their has their eyes on a an interconnected animated universe as well. Interesting, James. This, I don't know. If, did you read the? I think I think it was Wade and Samney Thor. Sort of the Mighty Thor, yes. Yes, this this gives me Mighty Thor vibes. I don't know about yeah. You. Oh, sorry, no, it was Thor the Mighty Avenger, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, which was great. Is that the is that the like the the all ages one? Yeah. Well. Yeah. 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 It's like a, yeah. I I read that. It was fantastic. Hmm. Yeah. So, Joe, did you say that they're in their twenties in this show? Yes. It's Clark and Lois in their twenties. So, going straight to my nerd pedantic side of my brain, is is that not? Well, he's traveling the globe at that age. Should he not be out and about going around the world saving stuff? Does he not get to the Daily Planet when he's a bit older? No? I think late 20s is probably where he lands at the planet, right? Well, that's, that, that's what I thought. Uh, sorry, nerd brain going off here. It, it, I, think, I, I imagine when they say they're going to be in their 20s, I think what they're thinking is it's going to be like the classic love triangle setup. Like they're not going to be married. They're not going to have a kid. You know, it's going to be a, a will they, won't they with Lois and Clark. Right, okay, got you. That's the impression I'm getting. Okay, um, one final animated project that I want to talk, uh, just mention quickly, I don't think we need to talk too much about it. Um, they're making a DC League of Super Pets animated movie, which uh, completely speaks to what we were talking about at the start of the podcast about there's just they're just everywhere. Um Hmm. Dwayne Johnson is going to be voicing Crypto, Superman's dog, in this. Um, uh, could Who's also going to be, be Ace the Bat-Hound? Well, so there, here we go. I was reading the other characters in this in this uh, report. Ace the Bat-Hound, Streaky the Super Cat, Comet the Super Horse, and the Super Monkeys, Gleek and Beepo. Oh, jeez. Um, let's go around the horn. Percentage chance that you end up watching DC League of Super Pets. <laughs> 200%. I was going to say, I'm just out of sheer curiosity. I'm, I'm <laughs> likely to end up watching some of this. I mean, who's, who's the showrunner? <laughs> who's involved? Is there no, any this, writers? This, is, this is a movie. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, Cinem- cinematic feature. Are we talking here? Or? Uh, who knows? <laughs> um, <sighs> I, I read this though and look, and it is, it's going to be showing up in 2022. I'm thinking, ah, my daughter's going to be like three. I am. I am going to have to watch the League of Super Pets movie. <laughs> well, I think. I think the, because you know, with, with the Rock being being your lead, like, no, this this is this will be a proper thing. This will be a big thing. That's why. That's what I took from that news story. Really? Just, you don't pay. You don't pay the Rock money to to have a small like Teen Titans go to the movies type release. Like this will for good or ill be a, you know, be a into the spider verse, you know, scale. Jared Stern who wrote it was the, he is sorry, is writing and directing was the writer or a writer on Lego Batman and did the screenplay for Mm -hmm. uh, Lego Ninjago. So good. I did the screenplay for Mr. Popper's Penguins too. So, you know, there's some some pedigree here. Right, he knows how to how to make movies about animals. <laughs> yeah. Reese and I were talking about Mr. Popper's Penguins recently. It came yeah? up orga- it came up organically in conversation. The, the Jim Carrey <laughs> film that yeah. gone to uh Who's the office guy? Carell? Yeah, Steve Carell. 
Because normally when you see a Steve Carell film, you're like, that should have gone to Jim Carrey. Okay, um, so we'll move over to live action now. Um, The Batgirl movie that I think, you know, we first heard about back when Joss Whedon was kind of... (laughs) Was uncancelled. Well, no, so he, it was his, it was his like project that he set up at DC when he got brought in as the, as the guy to do the Snyder Cut, right? And then he left it under no, a No, 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 it was, it was even before then, wasn't it? It was, he, he was on Batgirl and then they put oh, him maybe, on yeah. Justice League, yeah. But, but also who knows what the timelines are there because it, it sounds like, you know, as we found out, Whedon was on set earlier. Yeah, in this, I think, in I think Batgirl. history than we realised. Batgirl came somewhere between, I think, Aven- Avengers. I'm not sure if it was before or after Age of Ultron, you know? I think, but, yeah, it might, might have been around a similar time. Yeah. And, and then Whedon left the project. And I believe that was around a similar time to when the news broke about him cheating on his wife. And there was yeah. there was the, the kind of first wave of Whedon backlash then. And one of the details that came out about him, you know, leaving the project was that he couldn't figure out an angle on the story or he just didn't have anything. That was the claim. Yeah. The claim yeah. was he couldn't crack the story. Which which seemed insane that he would be hired to write and direct a standalone Batgirl movie without having an idea. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so then they brought in Christina Hodson, who uh, works on Birds of Prey and uh, and the upcoming Flash movie. Um, and um, now they have brought in the directors of Bad Boys for Life to join the project. So that's Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falah. Um, I haven't seen Bad Boys for Life, um, so I can't speak to it. Uh, but that was this was one of these like headlines that i read and i was like they've wait they've they've took the guys from the from the broy action comedy franchise to to do a batgirl movie huh okay i wonder if it's just a a, a safe pair of hands like you've you've proved I mean, yourself how, how a safe a pair of hands is it was well has I've, anyone, boys, have any ever I've, seen bad boys for life that's the first question you mean the highest grossing film yes. of 2020? I haven't seen it myself. That's true. That's true. That is true. <laughs> I have seen it, and my enjoyment was minimal. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, apparently, this is being set up as an HBO Max exclusive, um, uh. which, I, yeah, it, it kind of does make you go like, uh, okay. Like you know, do you know who wants to see a Batgirl movie? Right, seven-year-old girls, and I say that mm-hmm. with lots of love. Like, my daughter has a great has great taste in, you know, superhero cartoons. She would love a Batgirl movie. HBO Max is not going to show the kind of Batgirl movie that she would want to go to, and similarly, the one that I would want to take her to. I'm just surprised that. In 2021, you've got a female-led superhero movie that is kind of openly being shunted to a streaming platform and has been handed to two male directors. I just, I, I, I thought we were kind of past that. Especially given all the negative backlash towards Warner Brothers recently, you, you would think they would be pushing this right to the forefront with all the, the Ray Fisher stuff and the way that the whole Snyder Cut was handled and then the stuff with The Flash and... 
it just seems like they've they've they have not handled those characters very well. So you think they would take someone like Batgirl, and that would be their big push. That would be their big, yeah, we we can handle this, guys. Don't worry, we've got this. Yeah, I mean, Batgirl's a pretty pretty big character. Like, well, that's the thing. I, but I wonder whether they feel burned by Birds of Prey. That yeah. Birds of Prey didn't perform financially. That feels like the closest parallel that you can point to. Yeah, um, but again, like how how tedious an idea to be like, well, Birds of Prey did badly. It was, must have been because a woman directed it. Oh, no, not that I mean, but I mean more like I, I wonder whether that's whether that's why it, they're thinking HBO Max. But yeah, no, yeah. I, I can't... I, I just think the optics of hiring two dudes for this is uh, not great. Exactly what you said, Steve. But you know, maybe if it's if it's an HBO Max, you know, it sort of ties in with the the JJ Abrams chapter from before. Maybe you know, you got Reeves and Abrams sort of running the Batman universe across Warner slash HBO Max, and this is going to be this basically is a is an also round. This will exist, and we might watch it. The four of us might watch it, but this is not going to be a major release and so therefore they they've taken the risk or, or you know of of well the optics won't be that bad because nobody's nobody's gonna be <laughs> no one's gonna notice much. it yeah. <laughs> yes right yeah it's one of those that yeah i i don't know i read this and i go i think if you're doing this i wish you were doing it properly and this mm. this just has the this has the stink of not doing it properly I don't think I, I'd be based on this. I'd be surprised if it happens, but who knows? I, I do wonder as well whether now that all these streaming services are kicking off, it is just we've got the IP make content something that would have been a project that that just didn't you know didn't make it past gestation before is now no here's I don't know sixty million dollars instead of a hundred go and make something for our platform. The way, Net- the, the way Netflix kind of do. Here's a, here's a slight thought. Who's is is it? Jeffrey Wright playing uh, Gordon in the Reeves movie. Yes. Right? Yeah. You know, so therefore, probably you have you have Barbara Gordon in that in that universe as a as a woman of color, and you know, uh, yes, these are two male directors, but they're two, I believe, they're two, you know, um, non-white directors. So maybe maybe is maybe that's the angle it, again if if maybe. this if this is within the Reeves bat universe yeah potentially and that's the hook hmm. yeah I don't I don't think we know yet and to be honest mate I'd be surprised if DC know exactly <laughs> which <laughs> which area of its continuity this fits into um, hmm. but yeah so that that is the latest with the Batgirl movie um, we'll jump over to Marvel now loads of news this week. Um, Thomas Bazucha and Ali Salim are going to be the directors of Marvel's Secret Invasion series. Um, so we've been talking about Secret Invasion quite a lot recently. Um, Bazucha, it's previously, his credits are The Family Stone and Let Him Go. Um, and Salim is apparently best known for directing The Looming Tower for Hulu. So, you know, those aren't two names that you you straight away go, Oh yeah, no, I absolutely know who they are, and I know all of their credits. That's fine. Like these are, you know, kind of as Marvel has been doing, kind of plucking people from TV lesser-known movies and and going come in and be our our guys on on this project. Um, I wanted to talk here less about these two specific people being hired to direct Secret Invasion. 
and more talk to you about the the, the direction that um, that Marvel's taking with its TV shows because there was a there was an article doing the rounds in the last couple of weeks um, about writers kind of getting worried, particularly the Writers Guild in America, getting worried about the approach that Disney Plus was taking with their with their Marvel shows. That they were, you'll you'll notice that the writers are not called showrunners; they're the head writers. So Malcolm Spellman was the head writer, not the showrunner. And as 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 we've seen with those first two Disney Plus shows, you know Malcolm Spellman and Carrie Scogland were both doing the rounds on the interviews afterwards, um, and both as as almost like the the co creative drivers of the projects. So you've got one main writer overseeing it and one main director overseeing the whole thing. Um, and I think, you, you know, that's got the Writers Guild worried. Um, but Stephen, I wonder for you, does that, does that make you more or less confident about the, the direction of these series? Because this does seem like the approach that Marvel take with their movies as well, that, you know, like when Endgame came out, you had the Russos giving interviews and Marcus and McFeely giving interviews. And it felt like they were almost like co-authors of this thing. Um mm-hmm. Whereas TV is traditionally a writer's medium, or as you know, that's 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 the cliche um, that you have the you have the you normally have you know the the showrunner who's a writer, and then directors that cycle in and out throughout the course of a series. So, th- does this make you kind of more or less confident in the direction those shows are taking? Uh, it's, I don't want to be vague, but it's hard to say until you actually see who's going to be writing and and why they were perhaps chosen for these things like you were talking about um the guys that have just been mentioned for this new show now uh, i think you said one of them wrote the looming tower yep all right so to me that would maybe suggest a good fit but it depends on what the series is all about is it going to be a secret invasion is it going to be spy heavy is it going to be about you know government secrets and fbi and cia because if it is then that sort of makes sense to me um it, it sounds like quite a pat answer, but I'm always just a fan of hiring good creative people and let them get on with it. Not to the extent of let them do whatever they do, because I'm kind of worried with this whole Netflix model thing that we've got going on nowadays that directors have maybe too much freedom. Now, let, let me expand on that. I I like Zack Snyder. I'm, an, I'm a Zack Snyder fan, but I watched um, Army of the Dead the other night, and <laughs> I think he's in the position where he's now been given too much freedom. I think it's very easy for us as film fans and film critics, it's always been easy for us to say and sneer at films and say, oh, well, that was a studio scene. Oh, you can tell the studio did this, or you can tell the studio brought this down. We never really tend to give studios credit when things are good. We just praise the movie. (laughs) So I think with a lot of these things, it's good to get a balance between the studio and the creative people. I think... Marvel have seemed to have this really good balance going forward. They don't always knock out of the park. I think a lot of Marvel films are quite vanilla and quite bland, but you never get a stinker from them. So whatever they're doing in terms of their writers, in terms of their showrunners, whatever they're doing, it seems to work. And it's quite telling that all these other companies, all these other distributors, they try and copy it. They try and emulate it, but they've just never been able to get close to it, really. Warner Brothers have handled this universe pretty badly, and I think I've been generous in saying pretty badly. Um so the long-winded, the short answer to your question is, I think, get good creative talent in there that fits the material, but don't let them do whatever they want. Don't let them go too far. You know, you can't let them just make a four-hour movie and then that's it, you release it. There has to be some <laughs> thought for the people that are consuming it. That's, by the way, if anyone's listening, that's not a dig on the Snyder Cut. That was just a, 
don't don't come at me. I like Zack Snyder. Don't don't shout at me for <laughs> James. I I guess what makes me kind of raise an eyebrow at this because I really hadn't noticed that they weren't specifically using the word showrunner, um, and I kind of understand why the writers um, in America, you know, the Writers Guild, are worried that. You know, if the biggest TV shows each year are following this model, then, you know, is it only a matter of time before the the other streaming services and the other, you know, the other networks start to do it as well? But from a creative point of view, and I, I, I think this is interesting that, it, you know, it happened with Endgame and it happened again with Winter Soldier that it felt like there was a disconnect between the writers and directors. And that's the one thing that... um that hasn't really, like, you know, Stephen was talking about Kevin Feige before and being able to, you know, keep it all running smoothly and everything, you know, everything kind of interconnects so seamlessly in the MCU. Mm. And it worries it worries me more that, you know, that you, you come out of a project like Falcon and the Winter Soldier and you've got, yeah, you've got the writers and the directors kind of, seeming like they're on different pages about pretty crucial aspects of their show. And it does make me wonder that if this, it, if, if their TV is being run in this same committee method, which is to kind of go, well, well, you're both kind of in charge, but at different times. Well, okay. So this is sort of what I was going to say, which is that I think the way Marvel run things is that no, neither of those people are in charge. Kevin Feige is in charge. Yeah. And you're both here to do what you're told. Um, but can he be like are we reaching critical mass can he be in charge of all of this like I found it really fascinating some of the interviews where like Malcolm Spellman was talking about you'd be in a writer's room and someone would say can we do this and they'll go and someone would just go hang on I'll text someone in the uh, in the in the writing room for I don't know Dot Strange and then someone someone would just go back with it yep that's fine (laughs) (laughs) and uh, yeah it, it, it sounds like that that's you know that you know, there's so much happening with it. Like if they're if they're making three or four movies a year now and five or six TV shows, can Kevin Feige be that guy on everything? Because I it doesn't feel like he can. I mean, I would feel I would feel more concerned if One Division hadn't come out great. Cause it, it seems to me like it's entirely possible to make fantastic work using this model. Um, but even but even one division right which which I agree really good, but there was some stuff in there where you were like and 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 certainly like interviews that were coming out during the course of the series where it felt like certain people were teasing stuff and and you know obviously Be- Bethany trolled us all, but like it was like oh you're not you wait until you see who the engineer is or like there, there were just there were certain this, things and I think definitely with the is... finale as well that just felt like they weren't completely on the same page. This is a public relations thing, though. Like, maybe they haven't they haven't got their story straight before being interviewed. That's what's going on there. But wouldn't you like them to get their story straight before they make a thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, TV is messy. Movies are messy. You know, the the script isn't the final draft, right? So there's always going to be a disconnect somewhere. Um. It- there is I think just, my, a... my only concern is that if the quality of what they're producing drops meaningfully, you know, as, as a viewer, that's the thing I care about. Yeah. Like everything just... else, that's for the writer's guild to, to worry about. 
there is there is certainly some hubris to walking into a new medium and going, I know everyone does it like this, but we do it like this. Mm-hmm. With these massive productions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think the proof will be in the pudding, but obviously they, they you know, that Secret Invasion is a show that is um, you know, six, seven, eight shows into into what they're gonna be doing, and that's the approach they're taking for that one. So at least everything through to Secret Invasion is gonna be like this. So clearly they've not been scared off by the process and on any <laughs> anything else up to this point. I could see I could see Secret Invasion being being a good bell a useful bell bellwether though for all this stuff because it does feel to me you know uh, it's differently placed some of these other you know to these other projects it's sort of it's not it's not coming from any sing- one direction of the MCU that already exists it's a it's sort of it, it feels clearly like a limited series a whole cast of you know new characters. Uh, it'll, you know, it, it'll, it's obviously being produced in a time when, you know, when Feige has, you know, had sort of is is loaded up with many many more projects than he was. So maybe that that you know, if it's terrible, uh, <laughs> it could be a, a warning sign, right? Yeah, it's and also point. importantly, it's got a movie quality cast on it. Mm, yeah. Can I voice a minor concern? Please. You know when you watch a heist movie or a con movie and in the final half an hour you're always just waiting for that extra twist. You're always thinking, right, who's going ha- to have something up their sleeve here or what's this character going to have been revealed to have been doing? With something like Secret Invasion, are we going to be watching it in every single episode thinking, well, that person's a Cree, that person's a Cree, or that's a scroll, that's a scroll, that's not who they say they are, that could be someone else. It's like Line of Duty though, isn't it? <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Ooh. It's what people I want. Sh- a show I don't watch, but I understand that's how it works. Just, <laughs> there was some scro- there was there was scrolls and people were mad. That, that, I mean, that as long the as they avoid, the as long as they avoid the sort of Westworld thing of like you're just sitting there going, "Well, what twist can they do here?" Other than someone turns out to be a robot. If someone yeah. turns out to be a Kree, I'll be very happy because it means they've thought about it beyond who can be a scroll. <laughs> Um, okay, next piece of news I want to stick with Kevin Feige. Um, Kevin Feige was uh, being interviewed about Shang-Chi uh, in the latest issue of Men's Health. And he said that he he basically acknowledged that they made a mistake with casting Tilda Swinton as the Ancient One and wished that they'd done it differently. Um, and so I'll read his full quote. We thought we were being so smart and so cutting edge. We're not going to do the cliche of the wizened wise old Asian man. But it was a wake-up call to say, well, wait a minute, is there another way to figure it out? Is there any other way but to both not fall into the cliche and cast an Asian actor? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. And I think that obviously what he what he is saying there is, and the, the answer to that is what you will see on the screen in Shang-Chi. Mm-hmm. Um, guys, I was incredibly frustrated reading these quotes from Kevin Feige because I was like, so why did you put her in fucking Endgame then? Like, that's... If you acknowledge your mistake, like, yeah, it's great to have Tilda Swinton, but no one was crying out to see Tilda Swinton in that movie. You've got all of these action figures that you can use. That could have been any other action figure up on that roof right there. But you chose to bring Tilda Swinton back. And this this interview kind of... it's It's another one of those occasions where... I feel like it's Marvel patting itself on the back for representation. 
like when when they've when they've made these mistakes previously. This was there wasn't yeah, Feige saying yeah, we made a mistake, but then but then didn't really didn't really cop to why that he'd kept using the character. Um, I mean, I I think once the character's been cast, like bringing her back isn't isn't compounding that mistake. She was dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's not like it's not like bringing back Tilda Swinton for that story specific role took it from an Asian character who could have done it, right? It took it from another actor, full stop, who could have played that role in. Yeah, but like in in a movie that is a celebration of the previous twenty movies, which character could you could you pluck from the backstory to fill that role? Aaron Mordo. I mean. I just, I don't know. Sure. It, I, I just don't feel like Endgame needed that character. And it, it like. I mean, I, yeah, I acknowledge that that, that scene was <laughs> not the, not the best part of the movie. But no, I, I, I think the, mis- the mistake was in. With the, scene. the mistake the was in, fine. the mistake was in casting Tilda Swinton, not using Tilda Swinton once you cast her, right? Like. You don't you don't rectify a mistake by you don't rectify a diversity mistake by taking uh, a woman out of the cast. No, but it was a, it, this, it was a choice to put her in Endgame. That's that's what I'm saying. This sniffs this sniffs of you know like SNL SNL cast member a new SNL cast member apologizes for tweets written two and a half years ago, right? It's sort of it's it's a bit. You know, it's a bit fake, and it's to do with it's. It's from my view, I'm cynically viewing it as they. He needs to just sort of get ahead of some of these bits ahead of Shang Chi, and then and then then that allows the Shang Chi moment to be really, as you say, kind of horn tooting, positive, and oh, oh, those those mistakes you made in the oh, those are these. We apologise for these mistakes you made in the past. Like you know, you you some of these decisions are years old; they're very fresh. You you sort of. You know, uh, you knew what you were doing then, and now you know what you're doing now. Uh, I mean, the question yeah. is whether whether they do make those mistakes again or not. If they don't, then I think we can take it at face value that they they thought they were doing the right thing by not having this, you know, old Asian man cliche. Stephen, cast the deciding vote. Is Kevin Feige <laughs> a shit? <laughs> uh, he's a very smart man, obviously. I mean... If if we take him at his word and he wanted to cast Tilda Swinton at the time because they thought they were doing something different at the time, then then I suppose you can give him the pass on that. Um, I'm not sure why he would bring it up now. I think just just talk about the future. Just talk about what you're going to do going forward. Tilda Swinton was was fine in the Marvel movie. She was very, uh, to my knowledge, she was quite well received. Did everyone like her? I thought she was. Yeah, I think she's great. Fine in it, yeah. Um, I just don't know why you need to go back at it. This might be the cynical side of my brain talking, but when he when he starts talking about oh we we were wrong in the past to do that, that that smacks of him wanting praise for being right now. Yeah. You you were you were possibly potentially arguably wrong in the past, so let's just leave it at that and focus on what you're going to do going forward. And I think it's what Reese said as well about like yeah, getting it out of the way now so that so the mm-hmm. horn can be tooted when Shang Chi comes out. And I think that's also what kind of preemptively makes me bristle a little bit. It's like just uh, and I, I and I know they're a massive company and they need to do their PR, but like every every time something like this happens, it makes me think of the girl power moment from Avengers Endgame and <laughs> just going like 
no, this this just reminds me of how little you've done. Not not that you've taken massive strides now. How little yeah. you've done and how long it's taken. Anyway, so that's Kevin Feige. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we talked about the Green Lantern show on the uh, last episode. Jeremy Irvine is um, in negotiations to play Alan Scott in that series. Anyone? Uh, anyone got anything interesting to say about Jeremy Irvine? <laughs> he was he was okay in Warhorse. <laughs> um, I'm glad no one's got anything interesting to say about Jeremy Irvine because I want to use this opportunity to tell my Jeremy Irvine anecdote, <laughs> which is one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Um, the the moment where I threw away any kind of integrity as a film writer slash critic that I was at the time. So um, I was working at the Empire Awards, as Stephen mentioned, when I was previously doing a little bits of work at Empire. And, just rub it in. Just keep rubbing it in. <laughs> um, and um, I was, uh, I was. It was while the award show was going on. I was walking from one part of the building to another. And um, Jeremy Irvine kind of saw me with my Empire badge on and was like, uh, he was like, oh, um, excuse me, I'm trying to get some uh, some soft drinks for my parents. And it's just, it's it's all alcohol at this bar. Do you know where I can get just like some Diet Cokes? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So I, t- I took him to where I was like, can I get some Diet Cokes? And we were just stood there waiting and we were just kind of like... I was like, oh, I don't really know what to say to this guy. And and he was just like, cause, and he was just being like overly fat. Oh, like, thank you so much. Thank you for helping me. I'm just, I'm here with my parents. They're, they don't want to drink tonight. It's just, I've, I've, I've kind of brought them here as a treat. Oh, I've had such a great time. And, <laughs> as a treat. Yeah. And, and like, and so we were doing this small talk back and forwards and then it just fell entirely silent. And <laughs> for what felt like an eternity, <laughs> And the only thing that I could think in my head was like, well, you know him from Warhorse. Talk about Warhorse. And then in my head I'm going, but I didn't, I, I thought he was rubbish in Warhorse. I didn't think he was any good in Warhorse. Like he seems like a lovely guy, but I didn't like him in Warhorse. You can't, like, my internal monologue is just going a hundred miles an hour. Like, like, but, but, you got, but what else can you talk to him about? Because the only, he doesn't know you, you know him because he's in Warhorse. Why don't you talk to him about Warhorse? Which is a series, you didn't like him in Warhorse. And then finally, and, and finally, this awkward silence has just hung between us for what felt like an eternity. The barman finally returns with the Diet Cokes. He picks them up and he's like, oh, thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. And I just blurt out, I thought you were really good in Warhorse. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, the, that, that was the moment that all any self-respect I had remained. <laughs> So yeah, Jeremy Irvine in line to play Alan Scott in the Green. But yeah, you're psyched for him. You're really jazzed for him to be Alan Scott. Yeah. I'd, 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 I'd like to hear the sequel story of that story when, in five years, in three years' time, you you interact with him at like I don't know the Brit TV Awards, and that same thing happens. That would be that would be amazing. <laughs> Listen, I would, really love to win Green Lantern. I would go for a Diet Coke with him anytime, but. Um, I, I don't want to watch Diet Warhorse. It was as as someone who's known by Joey a lot of the time. Warhorse is a traumatic experience. So every every thirty seconds, someone goes Joey. <laughs> he was also in the Woman in Black too. Yes, so, you know. he, I didn't didn't watch the Woman in Black. I, I saw the Woman in Black. I didn't need to see her again. <laughs> I think he was quite well cast as um, the young Pierce Brosnan in Mamma Mia too. 
good cast, <laughs> good casting. I haven't well, seen that either, really but, that, but that is good. I do like that. Maybe it'll be well, good. In the here's an, and one more thing: we're not going to see see uh, Jeremy Irvine in then. <laughs> um, I'll probably end up watching a Green Lantern show, won't I? I think I will. I think I probably will, James. Patreon. Patreon 2024. Must we? Must we? Um, and then the final piece of news, this will feel like ages ago for everyone else, but um, listen, we've got... A, won't somebody let there be carnage? Have <laughs> we really not talked about this trailer yet? No, there's a trailer for Let There Be Carnage. Um, Tom Hardy's back, he's Venom again, he's talking to himself, and this time it's Andy Serkis directing, and there's 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 a, there's a carnage. Someone's someone has let it happen. What if there was a carnage? Yeah, and and Venom and he were separated by a colon. What, what, Dad? This movie's going to be great. Uh, the trailer is great. I'm completely here for this, as the kids say. Um, it feels like they're leaning into all of the funny shit from the first movie. That's you what know? worries me, though. The first film is great. Oh, oh come on. The first one is great because it has this, it is this really delicate balance between Tom Hardy doing something. Listen, this really delicate balance between Tom Hardy doing something that's really interesting and fun and weird. And that is in delicate balance with a movie that is an utter piece of shit. And those two things kind of, kind of make this wonderful source that is the first Venom movie. Um, I worry. You're mad. You're absolutely <laughs> mad. I worry that I worry that if this film is competent, it won't be good. <laughs> I mean, the first film was neither competent nor good. So no, it was incompetent and good. That was what. It, that's what it was. No, I disagree. It was incompetent and enjoyable. Certainly, maybe good is too far. Uh, I, I still, there's no amount of praise that we can unheap on Venom. <laughs> Stephen, where did you stand on Venom? Well, I was actually reviewing that one on the radio, but you guys might not know this, but in Scotland, they are so stingy with press screens that we don't always get press screens. So with Venom, I had to go and see it at a 10 a.m. screening first thing in the morning. (laughs) I I can admit this now. Leave 10 minutes before the end of the film so I could run to the studio to get there on time for the the recording. (laughs) And the film had begun such a kicking that I went into it thinking, I have to defend this. It It can't possibly be that bad. And maybe I just enjoyed that screening that morning, but I did feel quite generous that, that day when I reviewed it. But I just had no inkling at all to revisit it whatsoever. Somebody made a really, really good point at the time. Have you ever, have any of you guys seen the film Upgrade? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That to me was what Venom should have been. And not just because the guy that plays the main character in Upgrade looks like Tom Hardy. It, <laughs> it was a perfect balance of kind of horror and thriller and comedy it was funny it was smart i thought it was really sharp and edgy but venom to me was just i was never really sure what it was going for and i was i was surprised that tom hardy had signed up to that because if you look at tom hardy's cv he seems quite adept and and shrewd in the things that he signed on for he doesn't have a huge (laughs) amount of turkeys in that list i mean star trek nemesis Right, okay, I, I think okay, that was that was almost a different person, James. <laughs> I I think he's quite good in that film as well. As bad as that film is, I think he's okay in it. I mean, I don't know who looked at him and thought mm, young Patrick Stewart, but yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, I but, think exactly what he signed on to Venom for though was just creative freedom to do whatever weird shit he wanted. 
You're, like, you're probably right. You're probably right. There was no right. one you know that? on that set who was going to stop him jump, jumping in the lobster tank. There was no one there that could that could stop him from jumping in the lobster <laughs> tank. because yeah, he's the biggest name there. And then when he and said, maybe, you're putting it on screen, they put it on screen. Great. Maybe he's a bit more bonkers than, than I think he is because you know the film where he played both um, both Cray twins, Legend? Legend, yeah. So I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with that film, but one of those one of those twins in the film is really broad and really sort of out there. And the other one's quite realistic and down to earth, relatively speaking. And apparently Hardy was only interested in playing the broad and clunky one. Yeah. The director had to talk <laughs> him into playing the other one. So maybe that tells you something about where his mind is with these things and what sort of characters he's drawn to. Yeah. It's, I, I just really hope the sequel leans into the weird stuff. And, and the, 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 from what we've seen of the... <laughs> it looks pretty weird. Yeah, it feels like it will be doing. Because, like, there was the... Like, I didn't... Like I said, I thought the <laughs> thought Venom was I kind of yeah, incompetent. But there are moments like Venom calling him a pussy when he won't jump out the window, or, like, the weird three-way kiss that they kind of have with Michelle Williams and Venom and... And Eddie, which kind of ends with just Venom making out with Eddie because she steps out of the suit. Like this, the, the, I, I liked some of the interesting implications they made about the relationship between Eddie and Venom. That it ends up, and because of where the film ends up, it does end up being kind of like that is the central romance. It's those two. So the trailer they lead into all of that. It sort of hints that other people can are aware of Venom. Like when he goes to the convenience store and the, the woman behind the desk, she says hello to Venom, doesn't she? At the very start when, when Eddie Brock walks in, she's like, oh, hi, Eddie. Hi, Venom. So do his neighbours know about Venom now? Is this is this you huge know, symbiotic killer? Is this just accepted now as part of the You know, I have, a, I have a theory that that scene is from the end of the movie. Oh, the, potentially. That, that would make sense. There was, I, I believe that there was that kind of shindiggery in the, oh, good word, in the first movie's trailer. <laughs> yeah, I have a, a very strong feeling that's going to be taking place at the end of the film when, like, Venom has become, been outed as a hero for some reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the, the is- fact that they opened that trailer with, like, Venom literally making breakfast for Eddie suggests to me that they are going to lead into the relationship comedy of it. God, but I really we'll see. So. We will see because we'll at see. some point it's been announced. They're going to let it happen. There will be carnage. So we can. We oh, can... And what do we do? We want to any comments on the Woody Harrelson of it all? You know, the carnage of it all. Some too. <laughs> uh, he's not the he's not the Cletus Cassidy, I imagine. But that's the no. least of this film's problems. Am I the only one that thinks it's odd that we're now into the second Venom film and there's just no Spidey? It just seems wrong. Again, I'm fa- fairly sure Spider-Man's going to turn up in the tags like Stinger for this one. Uh, that makes see. I, I'm the opposite. I'm like, keep him away from all of this stuff. <laughs> no, nah, I am. I'm. I would Don't say eighty percent sure that they're going to have a Tom Holland cameo or some kind of Spider-Man cameo. In, we just said, this we just said that about the first one as well, though, right? I'm sure well, people can go back and listen to the tapes. There, I mean, okay, so in, in the trailer, there was a poster of Spider-Man with the word murderer scrawled across it, right? Mm-hmm. Which heavily yeah. implies that it is MCU set. 
Well, don't forget as well that the, uh, you know, aren't we already like approaching the end of the, of the Tom Holland Spider-Man MCU contract no, they stuff? Re- they re-upped right? it, didn't they? They re-upped it, yeah. They re-upped it when it nearly all went to hell, and then right, right, yeah, and then reworked it. So I think, but we still, yeah, we, and we still don't, we still, we don't know exactly what that is now. Yeah, well, the but thing I, is, I, there was the the strong implication at the time was that Sony would be allowed to use Spider-Man in their other films, right? That was like the undercurrent of the negotiations. Mm. Yeah, no, that I, Marvel I, could do what they want, and Sony would get to use him as well, and that's why you know you have things like. Michael Keaton turning up in Morbius and a direct reference to Spider-Man turning up in this Venom trailer. Like, they're, they're pulling it in close. We're, but we're going full multiverse. Like, I just... I fully expect that if there is a Tom Holland Superman, uh, Spider-Man in this, that it's a, it's a different one. It's totally a slightly possible. different yeah. suit. Yeah. Maybe that was their hey. solution. <laughs> We've had an epic bumper-filled episode full of news, uh, but... James, we can't put it off any longer. We do need to talk. <laughs> 300. So let's take a listen to the trailer for Zack Snyder's movie, and we will be back with our spoiler-filled thoughts straight after that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Then we will fight in the shade. This is where we fight! This is where they die! Before this battle is over, the world will know that few stood against many. Okay, 300. Um, this you have to is... have seen the other 299 first. Hey! <laughs> this was one of the movies that, that I've seen seven on our spreadsheet um, that... James, we were really in the middle on, I think, about whether it should, like, whether it should go into, like, is that Snyder? Could we do, like, a Snyder episode or could we do a Frank Miller episode? But it kind of of feels like that the place that 300 occupies in pop culture is big enough to give it its own episode and to really dig into it. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it's quite, like, plot-wise, it's quite a slight movie. Um, so I think what we're probably going to end up talking about is as much of the, you know, about as, as much of the, you know, the, the, the comic book adaptations that led to this, um, Mm -hmm. the impact it had and it, and, and it's wider cultural impacts because what I think is funny actually is like one of the, one of the main films, I think that, Sorry, the film I think that led to 300 being made was Sin City. But Sin City was a 300 adaptation, hugely stylized, and um, and and was really successful. And mm-hmm. so 300 comes along a couple of years later. I think crucially before the Spirit, um, before anyone could get scared mm. off. Um, and those are two movies that were. I went to university in two. 2008, I think. And um, in t- t- 2007, 2008, this was one of the, this was one of the like poster staples that was on every 18 year old boy's room. It was yeah, basically, do you have a Che Guevara poster or do you have a 300 poster? Take your hmm. pick. <laughs> and so it's, <laughs> are, you, are you a communist or a fascist? <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I had a Hallam Foe poster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, standing for my David Mackenzie Jamie Bell movie. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, many girls over Jeff. <laughs> I had a girlfriend all the way through university, and I married her <laughs> crucially because I was like, I may never find anyone ever again <laughs> tolerates this bullshit. Um, so yeah, um, so. Uh, 300 was at that point I, I saw it when I was in sixth form at the cinema um, and it, it did seem to just like specifically among that t- that teenage boy demo really really take hold um, but I wanted to ask the older gentleman among us where did what was what was what was your take on uh, 300 and um, and and did you feel that huge pop cultural impact as kind of as 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 deeply as it seemed to hit for my kind of age group? I mean, for me, the thing I remember is that 300 parodies started turning up everywhere. That's what clued me in that, oh, maybe people have taken notice of this one. It got yes, a full I, on meet, meet the Spartans. It got the full... It did indeed, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, you know, MTV Movie Award jokes, I imagine. That sounds like something that might have happened. Um, that That's what made me think, oh, okay, people have actually noticed this. At the time I saw it as well, Zack Snyder was still Dawn of the Dead Zack Snyder. Um, yes, yeah, well, yeah. And I, I really liked Dawn of the Dead um, with a couple of reservations. And when I saw 300, I was like, well, it's the same guy. Uh, I remember... Back in back in the distant past, I had a blog where I would, as well as writing up, you know, just stuff that had happened to me, I also reviewed the movies I'd seen. And I distinctly remember, it's not online anymore, but I distinctly remember describing 300 as being like uh, fucking pornography of violence. And at the time, I was like, yeah, that was cool. Uh, if I'd known what it would lead to, I might have been less enthusiastic. What What do you think it led to? Do you mean Do you mean the rest of the Snyder oeuvre? It's so we'll get into this, but I think the stuff about three hundred that I have come to dislike is how Zack Snyder takes a very literal approach to adapting the material, where he goes, "Well, I'm just going to take exactly what's on the page and put it on screen with no care for why or." how to adapt it into a film. And I think that's one of the things that makes his Watchmen such a terrible idea. Um, And it seems like he did it in 300 and went, well, that worked fine. I'll do it again. Watchmen was his, was his follow up to this. So when it went Dawn of the Dead 300 Watchmen, and then he has the weird legend of the guardians, owls of Gahul and Mm -hmm. sucker punch back to back. And then he, and then he goes full DC after that. And he's like, he's, only just coming up for air with Army of the Dead. Um, Stephen, where, how did it? How did this land for you at the time, and does it land any differently now? Um, like a lot of Zack Snyder films, when I went to see it, I did not like it the first time. So a couple of friends dragged me to see this, and I remember being that really annoying, pretentious guy in the foyer afterwards saying, it's all style and no substance. There's nothing to that. There's no character work. You know, being that <laughs> real bore, I was going on about that. <laughs> all the way home. And then a few years later, it was on TV and I caught sort of 10 minutes of it and I found myself being really drawn in. And um, I don't want to say that the style is the substance because that's a, that's a pretentious thing to say, but I always find with films, there's, there, there's almost two paths of criticism you can take. You can take, is this film doing what I want a film to do? And there's the other one of, is the film doing what, it's, what it sets out to do? Now for me, 300 is not my, on paper, it's not my type of film. I don't want to sound like a snob, but it's not. It's not what I would ask for in a film. But I think the film does exactly what it sets out to do, and I think it does it very well. It's a film that's been crucified over the years, and uh, the, the criticisms are valid. You can't argue with them. But when I like a film and other people don't, I tend to research why they don't like it, because I'm always curious. So a lot of the criticism of this, of this film I agree with. Some people say that it's quite repetitive, and I think <laughs> it is. Some people say that it's shallow. I'm... I, I would I would sort of concede that, but I read a lot of criticism about this film saying that it has no personality, and I could not disagree with that more. This is one of the most distinctive action films <laughs> of the two thousands. It's it, you, it's the sort of film that if you saw it on TV for two minutes, you'd know exactly what you're watching. If you saw guys at a Halloween party and they had on the Spartan capes and the shield, you'd know exactly what film they were. Mm-hmm. You know they were dressed up from. It's it's so distinctive. It's it's Zack Snyder. Not undiluted because it's not purely him. It's 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 Zack Snyder plus Frank Miller. But 
it's iconic and I know that phrase that word gets chucked around a lot on film tour and in film criticism but I think this film genuinely is iconic because you, you only need to see the poster you know the sort of the, the sideways poster where all the Persian soldiers are getting kicked off the side of the cliff and you can see them in silhouette you see that or you hear this is Sparta you know you hear that <laughs> quote and you know exactly what film it is so I think there's a lot of things you could say about this film negatively, but it's definitely not a bland vanilla film. You it's definitely, you definitely feel Zack Snyder in it as well. Like Dawn yeah. of the Dead, I think is it's not as recognisably Zack Snyder as this is. Like you look at 300, and you can see a direct line from that to Justice League. Yeah, like, there's no question about it. I. So well, <laughs> I was I was telling you this, James, that when I saw this for the first time at the cinema, um, so yeah, I would have been like 16, 17, and um, I w- was walking out and had enjoyed it, uh, but I turned to my friend and my friend went, well, that's it. That is now my favourite movie of all time. Like one... <laughs> One watch, and this and this guy was just no. Like, we so, uh, that is that is the greatest movie I've ever seen. I can't remember what it had toppled, uh, but yeah, he was like, "That's that's not my favorite movie ever," and I want to see that again immediately. We've all and, made that mistake, <laughs> and I think watching it back now, like I enjoyed it at the time. Um, I think it's one of those movies that I've almost been a little bit afraid to properly revisit. I can't remember the last time I saw it. I probably saw it a few times around when it came out. Um, what What's interesting, I think, about it is, and it's particularly interesting that this is in a week where Zack Snyder's doing the, uh, the press tour for Army of the Dead and he's answering questions about whether he's right wing and hmm. whether, his, whether his films are, are, you know, politically, ideologically right wing. Um, and that's really, cause I, I kind of feel like, you know, if you're dropping fountainhead references in the Snyder cut and you're, and you're <laughs> desperate and you're desperate to adapt that, that, you know, it, it, it feels hard to argue against and particularly watching this film back this Oof. week, it feels so Bush era. It feels so Bush era America of, like like it feels like a like a clarion call to everyone who supported that foreign policy um of of that era it and there is there's something unshakable about these 300 white dudes who are, who go to a, to protect their homeland against all of the brown people and no matter how much of their tricksy magic and their and and and, and yeah, any their of bribery their, like, and their sneaking yeah. and their like weird weapons, yeah. And 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 uh, <laughs> I was watching this. And I was like, I literally paused the movie twenty minutes in to message you and Reese and said, "This film has been homophobic, sexist, racist, and ableist already." And we're only twenty minutes in. It's like the, the people with the physical deformities are Oof. lesser than um, the. Uh, there is there's a joke about the Athenians being uh, being boy lovers, boy lovers yeah. very early on, and and, and uh, you know 
with no kind of <laughs> the facts, the facts of what you know we know about the Spartans in real life that that was more likely to be them who who you know that was I, I think that's I don't know whether that's an urban myth or whatever, but that the Spartans were you know they they engaged in homosexual sex as like uh, as as like a bonding ritual almost, um, but. Yeah, and, and and the fact that then there's there's like there's like rape and slut shaming of of Lena Headey's character in there, and there's there's all of this stuff that is kind of counter to my personal politics, and I think really like, and I can't, you know, again, it's really difficult to watch a movie where <laughs> where there's there's just all of these white dudes literally pounding their chests about how manly and white and you know, it, it does feel a bit master race at times, especially when you're then like you're then slow motioning like a black guy being decapitated and his head slowly spinning through <laughs> yeah, the sky. About six or seven times. It happens a it's, lot. It's really tough. But in spite of all that, I kind of I, I kind of agree with everything that Steven said, which is like it is visually iconic. And I think the movie really narratively really really works. I think you 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 kind of have to separate those things about it. But I th- I think there is something undeniable about this film. Um, I mean, it, and I it can't has quite my finger on it. The thing is, it has that like aesthetic coherence that really works in its favor. Like it it's got it's got its finger on everything it's doing. Um, and the problem, the problem is if you analyze it more deeply, what you get is like this sort of, like I say, borderline fascistic look at a sort of culture war between the West and the East. Hmm. And that in itself is, you know, dubious. It, then the, yeah, it comes largely from the mind of Frank Miller, who has had his problematic opinions about, you know, the West and the East as well. And is himself someone who, like, much like Zack Snyder does, like, really values these ultra-conservative views of of gender and race and, you know, personal, uh, I don't want to say responsibility, but, like, personal myth-making, like, the idea of Leonidas as this kind of legendary figure who took matters into his own hands and rallied his men and, you know, saved his world. Like, you can see what it is that appeals to people like Frank Miller and Zack Snyder about that narrative. So, Stephen, were you... Had you read 300? Had you... Did you read 300 after this? Or were you familiar with, you know, how much Frank Miller had you read full stop? Um, I'm sorry, I'm laughing and smelling because it's really embarrassing. The reason I haven't got 300, um, I've got OCD, so I went into I went to buy 300 one day, and you know how you get these graphic novels that are just so outsized and they just don't fit on your shelf. <laughs> it, it was a, it was about five foot long and it was huge and square, and I just thought, no, I'm not buying that. It's going to look stupid next to everything else. So uh, I, I read it on uh, Comicsology years ago. If if you quizzed me right now, if you said, well, Stephen, this scene in the film, is that in the graphic novel? I would probably get it wrong. I believe, you can correct me, I believe the Queen Gorgo subplot where she's 
trying to get the politicians to send the army out. I believe that was added for the film. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think that was in the graphic novel. It was yeah. against Frank Miller's uh, yeah. advice, I believe. So is okay. that is it? Because um, that's that's pretty much the only subplot in this movie. So is the is the is the graphic novel just pretty much? It's the three hundred having a load of scraps. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And the, terms- the I believe the reasoning was that they put the the Queen Gorgo subplot in to give some illustration of the world that Leonidas was fighting to protect. That makes sense. That does make sense. Um, and I, I, you know, it is nice to have a bit of texture and, and, a, and a bit of a, a breathing space to cut back to. As I've mentioned, yeah. Although it does, that... it does sort of come back to, to the like hyper masculine yeah. ideas that the thing that Queen Gorgo has to offer is her own body in support of her husband. Yeah. And, and eventually she will solve the problem through violence. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it is, yeah, the, 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 I guess it's not right, but it is not, it's not far from it. Um, what happens with her and, and Dominic? I think it is rape. I think it's definitely rape. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's, I, she doesn't agree to it. She just sort of allows it to happen, which is yeah. definitely not a consensual act. And it's and the, the, well, it's certainly very very aggressive the way that Dominic Dominic West character speaks about it. Um, yeah, it's it's a horrible scene. It's horrible to watch. It is. It's really bad, and it's in a way it's surprising that someone can take something by Frank Miller and make it more misogynistic. <laughs> Um, so I think it's interesting comparing this to Sin City, right? Which came, which, which came before it, which was the other big Frank Miller adaptation, heavily stylized, kind of similar popularity. Both of those films go on to get sequels that are kind of roundly (laughs) forgotten slash dismissed. Um, do both star Eva Green, I think? The Dame to Kill for and Rise of an Empire. Um, mm. Rise of an Empire is a, it's such a camp movie. Um, we, we should talk about that in some capacity one day. Um, but yeah, I, how do you guys feel this compares in terms of its style and visuals to Sin City? Because I, I think I lean towards this. I think this looks I mean, great. Um, and that might just be because I'm a Zack Snyder fan that I do tend to like his visuals. Although I think it's you've got to be careful in terms of giving him too much credit because a lot of the films that I like <laughs> that he done, I think you could maybe credit Larry Fong, the cinematographer that he usually works with. Is is this was this Larry Fong on this one? I think it was. Um, but just off the top of my head, if I had to think about this film, I think there's probably about six or seven really memorable shots in it. So there's the one I was talking about earlier where all the Persians are getting swept off the side of the cliff from the side and you just see their silhouettes. Um, I love the shot when Leonidas and his men are standing. I think they're beside the the hot gates and the sun is blocked out from all the arrows in the sky. Love that. Um, I loved that when I saw this movie for the first time. I remember when when it happened going like, that is clever. That is, they said they were. They said can, can they I, said they were going to fight in the shade. The arrows are create the shade. 
great. I love it. I, I really feel like I have to go to bat for Frank Miller on this one because both of those images are lifted quite closely from Frank Miller's panels, as a lot of the shots in this movie are. Oh, I believe like, I, I, I'm sure the whole film is. I, I, I bet the entire <laughs> film is lifted from the comics. Yeah, as I as I said before, like it is is very closely adapted from Frank Miller's work to the point of, you know, using using the comic almost as a storyboard in the way that Sin City did. But, but it's not like that. That's all that this film is because it does it does have that very distinctive color grade on top of it. Mm-hmm. And it does, with its, with its action, it does have, you know, it's Zack Snyder doing his slow-mo and speed ramping stuff, but it really, it really does feel distinct, Uh, you know, and and, and it feels like it has more, it feels like it has more cinematic dynamism to it than Sin City does. And this might be me being unfair to Sin City, like, and forgetting. But that does, like, that does feel like when when he is doing something that even is just a, a still image, there still does feel like the, a, a dynamism to the frame here that that Snyder is, a, is able to capture. There's a clarity as well to the action because when you stop and think about it, what you're watching a lot of the time is Persians wearing identical outfits and Spartans wearing identical outfits. So really the action should be confusing and it should be hard to see what's going on and who's fighting who, but I never felt like that when I was re-watching this film. I felt you always knew who was was where and what they were doing and what the point of the scene was and who was stabbing who. And I think it's very easy to criticise the whole speed ramp thing that Snyder does because he's done it a lot and it's it's become his sort of go-to thing. But back then in this film... Yeah, it felt very mm-hmm. fresh, especially the scene where Leonidas, it's a kind of um, sideways parallel shot where he goes through about sort of seven or eight people in a row, going from person mm-hmm. to person to person. And that sort of stuff just, that to me stands out. There's so many action films now that are bland and generic and they overuse mm-hmm. things like shaky cam. And you really, I don't know about you guys, but a lot of the time I'm watching an action film, I'm sitting waiting just thinking, I wish the sequence would end. I'm bored now. <laughs> yeah. In this film, I actually got a rush a couple of times during scenes like that because I thought as much as he has so many problems as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, when it comes to stuff like this, I think he really does deserve credit. He knows he he is talented when it comes to stuff like this. I mean, I don't know if he's developed his action storytelling since this film, but watching this film, I think it's a genuinely innovative action film. Yeah, I think that's fair. And a lot of... I think the thing about this film that it has in common with 300 is that it was done entirely like on sets, right? That it has in common with what? Sorry, Mostly CGI sets as well, right? That it has in common, do you mean in common with Sin City? Sin City? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, you said 300. I I was just making sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this this is like... And that was done specifically to, I believe, uh, like you mentioned the colour grading earlier, it was one of the reasons they did that was so that they could replicate Lin Valley's colors from 300. Like they wanted it to look like the painted frames that she had done. And, and I'll be honest that this does look like a film that was shot 100% in front of green screen. Um, mm-hmm. But that's, I think that's also what lends it this, this sense of unreality. Um, you know, there's, there's no, there's nothing naturalistic about this movie. Every, everything is, mm-hmm. is dialed up to 11. 
And yeah, and I just I just keep coming back to it, like I just think it works. I just really do think it works. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and 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 I think that there's there's certain stuff that you have to give Snyder credit for because, like, you know, they're not they're not the most complicated costumes, and I know that they're there in the on on the page, but Snyder does make them look properly iconic. And the fact that there are so many elements that that this film lent itself so easily to parody. Yes, something like a lot of that might have come from the page, but I think, you know, it's not it's not as simple, you know, as he found with Watchmen, it's not as simple as just going, Well, this thing really <laughs> works there, let's do it again here. Something I wonder, and I don't know how you guys feel about this, is it's it's easy for us as comic guys to look at films like This Instant City and say, Well, he's just taken it from the comics. So we've already read the comics, we know what it looks like, he's just taken that image. Does that matter to people who don't read comics? Because they have no idea that it's just been lifted from Frank Miller's comic. They're just seeing it and thinking, "Wow, this looks cool." So yeah, does that's, it matter to them? That's just a, that's just us recording a podcast, deciding who deserves the most credit for whether a thing is good <laughs> is good or not. I think I think ultimately, yeah, you're right. Is the is the argument just is it good visually? Is it good? Does it work? Is it iconic? Um, and and I think yes. I think it I think it is, and it's and it's and it is because of. Miller and Snyder. Hmm. Because also, you know, my big take, I, sh- I should confess, I watched half of this film today <laughs> and then I ran out of time, so I didn't watch half of it. But <laughs> I, I thought often, it was. it's interesting that we didn't get more of this in, in the, uh, we got more of this in lots of different directions, but what we didn't get, I think, after, after 08 was more, really sort of one-to-one visual adaptations of comics you know you know and, and even and that even extends to now you know most as, as talked about in our in the first half of the show ever ever more comic stuff movies tv shows um you know adapting ever more characters but what i feel like what what still what still doesn't happen all that much is mm-hmm. such a a oh this comic exists and 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 works and let's let's adapt this visually uh, as close as we can get and and I think it's interesting that we don't get that much anymore interesting that Zack Snyder hasn't even really hasn't you know in his later superhero stuff hasn't done that that much and yet you've got this one shot in this film 300 you know you could disagree with its politics but you've got this incredibly successful mm. adaptation of a single comic book and and why why more directors don't or, or more you know not, I have, try and adapt I, I do have an answer for that comics. question which is that i think frank miller specifically drew on the tradition of noir storytelling to do his visuals like he he was drawing from the language of cinema a lot more than most comic artists of the time like they were drawing from the language of comics um and what Frank Miller did was produce these incredibly adaptable comics, which, I mean, that's not true of, say, Rob Liefeld. It would be virtually impossible to to adapt a Rob Liefeld comic into a screen because the, the work is designed to work as a page, whereas Frank Miller was working more frame by frame, you know, from an almost Hitchcock tradition. So what you're saying is you think that, that Miller is uniquely placed to take this approach to adaptation i mean i wouldn't say he's the only person you can do it with but i think he's the biggest person you can do it with it would be very hard to find for example even one spider-man comic where you could do that 
I want, close I think, uh, of page to screen adaptation. I wonder if Tim Sale stuff would would lend itself to that. I don't know if you guys yeah, think, I think stuff, but that's quite cinematic. Yeah, I think I think that's a good shout. Um, I wonder if, if you know Watchmen something really did. I wonder if Watchmen really hurt it. And all, because because the other thing that I think is interesting from the question that Reese raises is it's not just that there wasn't a flurry of adaptations that were similar to this. And maybe the spirit as well, you know, maybe the spirit was another thing that, that, that got in its way. But like, we talk about Sin City and 300 and how distinctive and how successful they were. And both of those, yeah, they get sequels eventually, but it took like a decade for each of them. You know, like by mm-hmm. the time those sequels turned up, no one cared anymore. And it is, yeah, I think it is interesting. And I think it's an interesting, it's interesting to ask why, you know, and even now when there is this you know, this this glut of comic book adaptations, why this is rarely the approach that that you know mm. people doing the adaptations take. I think it makes sense in the MCU world, but yeah, why aren't there I don't know, why aren't there like almost high production value motion comics turning up on streaming profiles <laughs> streaming um services? I mean I guess the question I would ask for that is is what examples can we think of where this approach would work and how many of them are in independent comics where it would be possible rather than big corporate properties? Um, I was thinking Bill Sienkiewicz, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, well, that's... No, seriously. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I don't... I think Bill Sienkiewicz's work is so... So impressionistic, you couldn't possibly hmm. do a live action adaptation of it. Okay, animation, sure, but live action. Hmm. I think there's a whole conversation to be had about originality and what you're copying from, because it's easy for us to look at 300 or Sin City and we go, "Well, that panel's taken from this, and that panel's taken from that." And you you, you watch Civil War and you see the shot at the end when Cap and Tony are fighting, and it's the the sideways shot when the energy <laughs> blast cover, yeah. shield, yeah. Um, so we see that as comic guys, but isn't aren't most films copying from somewhere? Like uh, top of my head, uh, Last Jedi. There's the famous shot that's pinched from wings, or any Tarantino movie. I mean, you could go through any Tarantino movie, and every two minutes, you're if you know your stuff, and if you watch a lot of old movies, you're thinking, well, he's pinched that from that, he's pinched that from that. He's so <laughs> the amount of early Simpsons that comes from Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> well, De Palma, Brian De Palma, an entire career mm-hmm. of of um, I don't mm-hmm. use the word copying, homaging. <laughs> Um, Hitchcock, so aping. aping, yeah. Maybe we're just more sensitive to the stuff because we read the stuff it comes from. I mean, I think I think there's a valid, there's a valid point that like no no art is fully original, right? But I think it's that is a different question to why haven't more people done straight adaptations the way that Three Hundred and Sin City did, given that those mm. films were so successful? Like, why was that approach completely chucked out? Mm. But this is because it's got its it's got its positives and negatives, right? Because the unreality of those films is definitely part of what makes them distinctive. Yeah, I mean, was it maybe Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, which had the same approach but was not well liked? Did that make people go, "Oh, well, we want to try and film our films as if they're on sets"? I guess as well, maybe maybe it just feels inherently risky, but that you are handing a director basically something that mm. that feels like 
from the gra- it's not something you can pick, fix in post or it's not something that you can decide to make a turn on later yeah like, if you de- if you defer too much to the comic creator you're staking you know 100 million on it working when you you could make something more pedestrian and not take that risk is there an excitement thing as well no what i mean by that is if if we heard that when civil war was coming out for example if someone said Civil War is coming out and it's going to be the Civil War that you read, it's going to be exactly that page for page, would we all then think, <laughs> well, we know exactly what's going to happen. We've read it. We know the story. We know every panel. Whereas mm. the one that came out was the, part of the joy of it for me, certainly, was thinking, right, I wonder how they're going to work this. I wonder what side Tony's going to be on. I wonder how they're going to work this with Cap. I wonder like I say, what I think, I think it really makes sense within those universes that, that the direction that Kevin Feige is increasingly taking things in, which is to go... Right, I'm going to take my sprinkle of informa- uh, inspiration from here. I'm going to take my sprinkle of informa- inspiration from there. Maybe a bit of that story. Maybe a bit of that story. But ultimately, I it needs to it needs to fit into this large tapestry that I'm painting. And um, so I'll take the bits that work and then re refix it to my world. Um, I, I do think I do think there is there would be the opportunity to make more stuff like 300 to go. Okay, what is what's one of the big graphic novels that, you know, has, has been in the, you know, I don't know, top hundred selling of all time. And could we, could we just give it a straight adaptation? Like, could they, like, I don't know if someone wanted to do saga, for instance, could they, could they take this kind of stylized approach mm. with that? Um, yeah. I think it is inherently risky, but I wonder whether we are getting maybe close to that, you know, saturation point where that, that, that is the approach that someone decides to take again. I think it's, I mean, I sort of, so I sort of think that the number of comics that this would work with is actually quite low. Uh, yeah, I, I also think it's that. <laughs> I think most, mostly um, the part of the adaptation process is saying, how can we make the essence of this on the page work on screen? Like, I think maybe maybe directors just sort of got lucky with Frank Miller and when they looked at doing it with other stuff, they went, actually, this isn't going to work. I think it's crazy, though, that this works as well as it does because... <laughs> it is. Be- it is insane. Because like, even when you think about Sin City, yes, that has that bold stylistic take, um, but that's not doing straight, straight adaptation as closely as this is. And it also is, you know, it's broken down into those smaller stories. Um you know. I mean, it is, I think it is a lot closer than you're suggesting. Sorry, here. well, it, yeah, it, it may well be in terms of those. But what I mean is that, like, you are not telling one straight narrative over the course of that film. It's basically a little mini anthology movie, isn't it? Um, yeah. Whereas this is just just from start to finish, it is one thing. Um, mm-hmm. And there's no, like, there's no massive variation in the style. It, it, it you know, paints its flag to the mass straight away and, and carries on and at least there are like little shifts in sin city as it goes between the different stories um yeah i i, I just i think it's a miracle that it works as well as it does and that <laughs> and that it stays compelling for as long as it does because you know ultimately like the 300 soldiers are sent out very like what like within the first 20 minutes right there's the there's the there's the early stuff in sparta and then the 300 soldiers go out and they find that that little passage that they're going to defend and then it's fight after fight after fight there and you'd think okay so so how long's the movie it's 85 90 minutes it's a it's a it's an hour 55 it's (laughs) you know it's it and 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 it like 
it never dragged for me. I don't know about you, like what you guys thought, but I, you know, I, I was there kind of going, even when I was going, well, that's distasteful. It was still like, you know, it was still propulsive. I don't, I don't, and, and the, and the action doesn't feel repetitive either. It feels like that, that there's always something different going on. It reminded me quite a lot of game of Thrones that it was like, it was a very miniaturized version because you've only got these 300 soldiers, but you are kind of going like, oh, that's fun battle tactics. Like Game of Thrones would do that where Mm -hmm. they'd go like, yeah, it's like there's, there's there's a joy in kind of seeing the tactics of this battle and how the two different forces attack and how they defend and... um you know, it's, it's for me why some of the Game of Thrones big battle episodes are better than the others, are better than others, and some kind of are a bit, bit duds. But like here, that like there's there's always an idea that the Spartans have, mm-hmm. and that and, and also, that, that lasts it for two hours. I thought it was interesting. So watching, you know, Snyder's Justice Justice League the other the other month, you got a real sense of. What he, what he, what he, you know, what he might take from the same footage and, and Snyder it up a bit, and, and you know, a lot of there's a lot of talk about the slow motion of of of, of it all and, and the speed ramping and that. I found it so interesting to then watch this with that in the kind of rearview mirror, and I think part of the reason it zips along is because you have these scenes where there's not a lot of plot and it's you know in real time the thing that's happening takes up I don't know five minutes, but Snyder makes it take up eight minutes. Uh, and this, that slow mo, it, it kind of kind of draws you in in a way. You know, it, it, it he can make an action scene, action scene where some quite straightforward stuff is happening. Even though I agree with you that there's there is always an idea, yes. But when he slows those things down, and you know, there is even sequences where it's later, it's later, uh, later, later, he's just sort of walking through the, 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 mar- the market. I, I also, I also don't down. know it's, which it's of the two versions of Lena, Lena, Hedy, Hedy we should be going with for either of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be one interpretation of that anytime we say a name. <laughs> But you know that this, that you know, maybe I don't even know if this is peak Snyder slow mo. Like right, right at the beginning of his of his career, he just he, he <laughs> sort of pushes it as far as it can go. But that all that stuff is so in, it's interesting. It's uh, it makes the movie feel different. Yeah, certainly for me, I think like the stuff in this film, the thing that the slow mo invites you to do is like study the frame. It's like mm. you know, really taking the idea of this, you know this axe spinning towards a foe or something. It, and You know, it builds anticipation rather than boring you is what re- happened. And really revel in the stuff that the film wants you to revel in. So as Stephen was saying at the start about the film being successful in what it sets out to try and do, you know, you do find yourself, you know, like a, like, you know, when the, when the arrow rips through Xerxes's cheek and, the, the the piercings are ripped aside and like and and Leonidas has made a god bleed. In that moment, I am kind of going like, oh yeah, fuck cool, Leonidas. Even though you know that is, uh, I, I'm <laughs> at the same time I'm going. Even though it comes with some awful subtext. Yes, even though I'm a, I'm like oh, all of the subtext here is not not great. Um, but yeah, I think it does it does force you to revel in and really like. It's almost like you as an audience member are the troops listening to David Wenham's rallying call at the start. And it's like, it's two hours of bacon. You go, 
God, isn't this cool? Isn't it cool to be masculine and awesome? <laughs> well, I can only so imagine. We, <laughs> we, had a, we had a technical glitch uh, no, about half an hour ago, and, and I, um, in the in the break, I, I said I, I'm, I might make an inflammatory suggestion. Uh, so, but I'm going to make it now. You know, is this movie? <laughs> is it Birth of a Nation? Like, is it? <laughs> You know, is it a very technical? Is it a very technically not just proficient, but sort of groundbreaking, iconic movie, with with very, you know, especially as it's aged, questionable yeah. politics and morals. But that is such that is such an effective piece of filmmaking that it kind of you know brings you on board as an audience to like to I, some I of was stuff. Is it both of I was <laughs> I was also thinking during the break during the break we had like. The the thing that's surprising about this film to me is like, on the one hand, it it presents all of this, you know, hyper masculine self sufficiency, you know, like just sort of individualist way of thinking, but it also marries that to the like completely false idea that eugenics is the best way to build an army. Mm. And like, it's so uncritical and it's portrayal of those ideas. And like in, I read a few interviews around the movie that came out at the time and they were saying like, Oh, you know, the Spartans did, you know, did murder their children if they considered them unfit. Um, and they did, you know, test children, although it wasn't by sending them out to kill wolves. It was, um, by getting them to secretly murder one of their slaves. And if they got caught, they were punished for being caught. Um, and it's just like, the the film does nothing to suggest that, you know, no, the murdering f- the genetically inferior is in any way a bad idea. Yeah, the, the moment when the, the deformed guy turns heel Oof. is... I don't know. Feels feels so indefensible to me. <laughs> like I'm not. Yeah, sure. and then you have like you have all these sort of mutant people on the Persian side. Xerxes himself is like giant beyond recognition you, as a human, and he also the, has this like. You have the deformed, uh, like uh, weird, creepy old men who are the like mm-hmm. oracles and seers who then you know are not it like are not only yeah, corrupt are not only shown to be evil but are also shown to be just in the manner of their day-to-day business that everyone already knows about and is cool with they sexually exploit the most beautiful young spartan women because yeah that's what they get as payment for their job and yeah there is there's all of that stuff in there that's just I think I think that's an interesting suggestion, Reese. Because I would say that if you you know if you were to make that argument and you were to buy into it, then the you know the I think the parallel would be birth of the nation is to the clan what three hundred is to the Proud Boys. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. The thing the thing for me that really stands out is like how effete Xerxes is. Yeah. It's like he's he is the literal god king of this other empire and he's like you know I, do I want to say coded as queer? He is very queer he's, in his presentation. It, coded is being it you know that would be <laughs> subtle. It's yeah. Like he's got all this BDSM imagery around mm. him. 
And it's basically going like, look at these weirdos and perverts. Watch, watch these extremely masculine, regimented white guys fuck them up. And like, this is how civilization was won. And, and you're like, also, is it explicitly heterosexual white men because they have all left children behind? Yeah. And there are a couple of moments of like severe homoeroticism, but that's sort of unavoidable. Yeah. And that's, and that's what's I'm weird. not sure it was intentional. But that's what's kind of weird about it, isn't it? It is, it is that for all of that, the film does have such, you know, like, like it's, um, it's the Fassbender character and Astinos, um, mm-hmm. who like have a, have a proper bromance in this movie. And like, when they're walking around with their, you know, as we as we joked at the start, like slightly fake tan stencils, CGI enhanced, but also, <laughs> you know, naked torsos. This is this is a movie that you know we are always looking at the chiseled torsos of impeccable men at all times. <laughs> at, <laughs> I know at, I was at all times, and there is uh, there's there's something about the violence and there's something about the real like the real bloody violence here that like it does feel kind of carnal and sexual like there is some there is <laughs> when i when i told my girlfriend that i was watching it she said say hi to the world at men for me <laughs> yeah and it's 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 you know it's funny to put that against some of the politics of the film I'd love to. I'd love to hear Zack Snyder talking about it now, because uh, I think he like because the, the, the other thing about Snyder is that he does come across as this like genuinely like everyone says he's really nice. Um, he clearly, you know, the people that work with him have an affinity for him. He seems genuinely thoughtful. He's talking about you know in the in the press tour for this that yeah, it's weird that everyone thinks I'm right wing because I'm definitely not. Um. So it's interesting you make that point because I read, again, I read an interview from the time the film was made and someone brought up what you brought up, which is how like steeped in Bush era politics the film is. And his, his thing was like, oh, you know, I wasn't really thinking about that. I was just trying to put the film on screen. You know, you could, you could say that the, the Bush administration is represented by either side <laughs> so I, I feel like whenever yeah. it comes to applying politics to his work his immediate thing is oh yeah but if you flip it around it still works but also that i mean isn't isn't that isn't that in a way that that, that can be artists sometimes that you know and, and from a critical perspective in the future that it's fascinating because you know he, he, what if he what if snyder doesn't you know, he's a, he's just a vessel. He's the sort of, he just, uh, you know, he just puts onto the screen what he views as the truth, but mm-hmm. you know, he's not, uh, he's not, he's not got that self analysis to understand, <laughs> to understand his point of view. And then in a way that, and it, and way, it does sound, and it right? does sound like, you know, when we're, when we were apportioning credit earlier in, in the podcast, you know, do we, do we apportion blame and say, actually like how much of this was not in the source material? Mm-hmm. It sounds like most of it was. Like I've seen the design yeah. of Xerxes is in the comic. Oh yeah, it, seems... it absolutely was. Yeah. Um, Stephen, as a Zack Snyder fan, yes. How, how I'm not do mental. you feel? <laughs> <laughs> how how do you feel about his? You know, 
about his tendency to insert politics into his work or indeed not? Um, it's a real tough question. Um, I do think he comes across as a really cool guy, and I'm not just saying that because I like his work, because there's plenty of directors that I like and I think sound like real douchebags. <laughs> he, he seems like quite a cool, laid-back guy, and my impression, which could be completely wrong, is that he likes source material and then he tries to put it on the screen as closely to the source material as he can, for better or worse. Maybe sometimes he's too close to the source material. Maybe there are flaws and problematic things he's adapting he's unaware of, or maybe when the collaborator like Frank Miller's working with him, I don't know, maybe they fight to have certain things included. Looking at this film, I think it's quite cool that he included a subplot for Queen Gorgo. That, that's him giving more screen time to Lena Headey. Hedy, what did we decide on? Did we decide? We, we, no, we can never decide. <laughs> um, so I, th- I think if you're gonna if you're gonna adapt Frank Miller's work this closely, then you're going to have these problems because Frank Miller tends to make these worlds where they are very icky and everyone's quite bad in a way. I mean, when you guys were talking about this earlier. I don't disagree with anything that you were saying. I would I would maybe add to it, though, that um, Dominic West's character, he's a white guy, and he's one of the most vile people in the film. You could look at it and say that... I don't look at the Spartans and think of them as whiter-than-white heroes. I think you're supposed to watch the film and think they're badass and they're cool and they're great warriors, but would I want to live with the Spartans? Absolutely not. I, <laughs> I had bad asthma when I was younger. I had a worse immune system, and I was built like Steve Rogers before he got the the Vita race. So I would have been off that cliff in a shot. I mean, at the start of this film, it tells you that the Spartans throw babies from cliffs. Now, to me, that's not a ringing endorsement. I don't look at these guys and think, wow, I want to be one of them. I mean, you want to look like them and you want to fight like them and you want to put on a cape and trunks and look as cool as they do. But I don't look at the Spartans and think these guys are amazing and awesome in every way because I think they're almost undone by their hubris in this film. You could admire them in <laughs> the way do, that they... They do all die. They yeah, do all they die. Do, it's admirable that they say, you're not <laughs> going to come through us. We're going to stop. We're going to stand here. And when Xerxes offers them you know, the land and the titles, he still says no. I think that's all admirable. But if they hadn't been so quick to throw away the deformed guy, who then went away and told the Persians about the was it the goat path? I think it was a goat path. Hmm. Then maybe they wouldn't have died. So I mean, I think they're very, very flawed at the same time. Did that make sense? I think, what I said? Yeah, yeah. That's. I think that's a valid reading. Certainly. Um, I think it's interesting to me actually how much they show a lot of compassion to um, what's the guy's name? Ephrodites. They show a lot of compassion to him in saying, like, you can't fight because you're not physically capable. Well, but, you I, know, I think got specifically, specifically Leonidas has that compassion, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, there, there is a bit of a, like a, a bro-y vibe to the 300 as a group, but Leonidas mm-hmm. is this stoic, yeah. compassionate leader. And I almost say, like, mm-hmm. it is almost like, it's almost like he rises above the rest of the floors. I mean, he's a guy, yeah. I mean, like, one of a, them. Only one of them holds their Spartan reserve. When the rain's lashing down the road, you're only one of them. Oh, David, yeah, David Wenham's voiceover in this movie is... <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Only the hard. But yeah, I, like, I don't know, because, like I say, they show that character compassion and he betrays them. So I don't know. I think, yeah, maybe maybe there's a bit more nuance than we're giving it credit for. Yeah, I wonder what... I, do we think, I think it's, do me, we think it's Leonid just showing him compassion that is what leads to the betrayal or is it them casting him aside that leads to the betrayal? Like, which is, which is it? 
because that's you know I think that's that's ultimately whether you whether you land down on Stephen's argument or, or the one we presented earlier. I mean, Maybe the fact uh, the fact of the betrayal. I think. It, I, think I think it's worse. I think it's because yeah, that's I, I I watched I got to that basically to that scene and then I stopped watching it, <laughs> uh, and so I really dwelled on that scene. He seems to, you know, he seems to be angriest at his mum. There's the bit where he goes, Ma, you know, mother, you lied to me. You know, so is that is that Snyder slash slash Miller saying, Oh, it's yeah, it's it's the it's the woman's fault. And and then you know, is that almost the worst yeah. possible version of I don't know, maybe like maybe he his mom. He's a, you know, he's a Maybe we are just putting more thought into this than <clears throat> was done at the time. Yeah. You could also maybe. say that the Spartans are sloppy because they know that there's this goat path that could mm. seal their fate, <laughs> but but doesn't Leonidas say at one point and just pray to the gods they don't think about that? That's pretty sloppy. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. They leave a few guards there and hope they don't don't find it. So, in a way, is the parallel we should really be drawing is with the um, stormtroopers on the Death Star. So, they're, <laughs> so they're the stormtroopers, and the the Persians are the Jedi who find the uh, who, who find the the little, little flaw in the plan. <laughs> I mean, for me. Just to go back to Stephen's point, like the thing, the thing, the question isn't, do I want to live with the Spartans? It's like, what does Zack Snyder think of the Spartans? What does Frank, what does Frank Miller think of the Spartans? Because I, I think the work is just so openly uncritical of everything they do. Mm-hmm. Like they're outright the heroes in every way. Like they're they're noble to a fault, and I just. Again, I, yeah, I would say again, certainly Leonidas. Yeah. Yeah. But just like part of me, part of me wants someone or some part of the text to be saying, hey, eugenics isn't great. Hey, maybe, you know, killing babies isn't such a cool thing to do. But as it is, if they hadn't, if they had killed the deformed guy, they might have lived. So... I, I feel like we can all bring a lot of a lot of interpretation to it, but is it not in some ways the filmmaker's responsibility to take a stand on those things that they're portraying? I guess probably not. Certainly, that's want, what not, I not, like not if you want it. Not if you want it to be the box office hit that it was. I don't yeah, know. Maybe just... maybe that's maybe that's Snyder's magic that he is literally just taking a step back because yeah, it, it, it is interesting that so much of his career, as Stephen was saying, has been adaptations, and that he has. Mm-hmm. He has so often adapted other work, even down to those little CG animated owls. Um, and I think that <laughs> I think for me, the most interesting film of his career, and I haven't seen Army of the Dead yet, but the most interesting film of his career is Sucker Punch. And I don't, I think Sucker Punch has so many problems, but it also is so, <laughs> it also is really interesting. And it's also the one that I think kind of early on, like that Snyder opens up every tool in his, like in his mm-hmm. cinematic kit rather than, you know, in a film like this where he has a lot of flair, but it does feel like a lot of the same tricks again and again. Um, and yeah, and I wonder, I wonder whether it is that he is just, you know, he's he's he wants to kind of bring his filmmaking style to adapt what's there, but he doesn't want to bring too much more to it because does he bring anything? Does he bring anything of his viewpoint to Watchmen? Does he does he skew that narrative particularly, or does it just feel like? He's, he's done a Watchmen adaptation. <laughs> opening credits, but the opening no, credits—the no, opening no, credits—is just an adaptation of an idea in the comic, rather than being a 
It's just no, it's just in the comic. no, but it's it's you know it's like taking the alternative history that's there in the comic and and yeah. creating one brilliant sequence out of it. Like, don't get me wrong, but you know, is it? I'm not sure that I'm not sure he has brought anything particular to Watchmen, like a point of view or a yes, skew. He has. He has. Yes, he, he, has. he has. Go on. Go on. Go on. Hundred percent. Because Watchmen is very critical of its superheroes, the comic and the movie. <laughs> It's as though Snyder reads the comic and goes, <laughs> "Yeah, <laughs> what if we? But yeah, but what if these guys were cool? Like that is a good point. Like he's so the action he's sequences, all, so on top. It's completely in yeah. there. The action sequences in Watchmen are like properly jacked up superhero yeah, sequences, 100%. and you have night owl snapping people's arms. And the whole yeah. point in the comics is he's just a weirdo in a suit. He doesn't." Mm-hmm. Do that. Snyder is all over. It's all over that movie. The, but the, again, the Snyder of three hundred is all over the Watchmen movie completely. Yeah, but and again, that's what makes like his his is almost like he doesn't have a point of view. He just thinks what's cool. It would be cool if he broke this guy's arm. But but right? but you know, absence of point of view is a point of view, right? Like that. That is that. Yeah, it's just it's we've, harder. We've, we've spoken for an hour about three hundred you know, about Zack Snyder and 300 that we, we have not spoke. We have not spoke about a man with, with no point of view. We, or, or I guess we've <laughs> spoken about, I, I, I think my argument would be that he might not know, he might not know his own point of view, but he has a point of view. That's yeah. I think about. he's definitely got a perspective. He definitely <laughs> thinks, for example, that it is okay to murder someone or seriously injure them. If your goal is noble. Well, but does I... he recognize that in himself as a philosophy mm. or does yeah. he just think, oh, you know, this is what this guy would do. And that is a cool, here's a cool version of it on screen. Can, can mm. we take this back then to, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Snyder has, has been very interested in adapting the Fountainhead. So can we take all of this back to Randian objectivism, which is <laughs> the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life with productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason as his only absolute. Like I mean, that, everything that, about his filmmaking career. Right, that describes <laughs> a lot of... Uh, thank you, Wikipedia. That describes a lot of Snyder protagonists. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, so maybe all, that's, almost that's the, all of his... That's the yeah, almost all of his output fits into, that, fits into that, you know, bucket, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. And he's not the only one, you know, like Brad, Brad Bird's been accused of this with... With his his filmmaking as well, and particularly The Incredibles, right? That that, that has an objectivist streak. Um, I mean, in, and I and don't in think fairness, I don't think it's necessarily a, 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 a you know just just to not agree with someone's politics and to not agree with objectivism. Is 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 that then a virtue that you like? Do you do you kind of want him to embrace it a little bit more and be more, a bit more like just embrace that he is a political filmmaker that has this this is a tenet that he believes in that, that is kind of central to his filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem with objectivism, right, is that you can, it, it's really like the American ideal, like of individualism just jacked up to 11. And so it fits really well onto like superhero narratives. It's really hard to make a superhero film where, you know, the real hero is society. <laughs> right. <laughs> And 300 is absolutely a superhero film in in all but presentation. Like, if they were wearing spandex, this would be a superhero film. Well, they're wearing capes, James. 
They're wearing nothing. Indeed. <laughs> They're wearing nothing. <laughs> They're wearing underwear on the outside of their bodies. <laughs> Listen, I would go as far to say if they were if they were wearing like if they were wearing anything different, this movie would not have been as successful. Sorry, carry on. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was just I was I haven't read the Fountainhead. I'm not really too familiar with it, but I believe that part of one of the main themes running through it is about um, an artist wanting to pursue their vision against um, bigger interests or a corporation or what they're being told to do. So. People always say I read I read the generous version of things, so I might be doing that again. But I, I can see why that theme would a would appeal to Snyder after the whole Justice League uh, Warner Brothers debacle. With you know, we're going to keep <laughs> your name on this film. We're going to replace yeah. you. We're going to have all these reshoots. And I, like, I don't want you guys to think that I am one of those blind blinkered <laughs> Snyder as a genius guys because I absolutely see the limitations of his work. I don't like all the films he's made. I don't think he's a master filmmaker or a genius or anything like that, but I wasn't. I wasn't even huge on the Snyder cut, to be honest. I was quite. I was expecting something different, but I can see why. If if that's what the Fountainhead is, and I'm not saying it is, but from what I've read about it, if that's what it is, surely that's understandable that it would appeal to him post Justice League. <laughs> yeah, or- that is a fair point, and it's not like he's angling to adapt that in a shrug, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's the Fountainhead particularly. But in I any, mean, like in any sense, adapting the Fountainhead is in some way an endorsement of Randian politics, right? It would be like saying I'm going I'm going to adapt. You know, I'm trying to think of if you Mind if you camp. adapt. Sorry, <laughs> Mind camp. Yeah, yeah are, right. Could you do a, could you do a biography of Hitler politics. without? <laughs> Could you, yeah? Could you adapt Hitler's autobiography without somehow endorsing him as a figure? Well, no. I think to be maybe to Stephen's point and to the group's point is, well, I, you know, uh, it's it's quite rare actually that there are there aren't you know what 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 um, what fiction novels what novels are quite so um, uh, applicable to the author's politics as Ayn Rand's. Novels, right? That that, that the list is yeah. there. Isn't, there isn't a list, right? There isn't. There aren't. Uh, there aren't equivalent. Yeah, because most people, people just cut straight to the manifesto. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> the thing is, though, and I, I I know all of this stuff is in it, and we've talked about revisiting it. But you know, I watched this film as a teenager and enjoyed it, and didn't really read any of that stuff into it. And I also didn't. I also didn't take it away and get indoctrinated into it with like really. You know, <laughs> no. it's not, so it's like I, I think it's entirely possible. You know that it's that it's incidental and that it's a, it's a product of adaptation and that it's not necessarily like it. it there is you know it's entirely possible. that Three hundred is just a good action movie and a really visually distinct action movie, and that yes, this stuff is in there. But it's not. It's not so pointed. Like it's not. It. It's all there, and I can't miss it on a rewatch now. But also, I missed it as a as a uncritical thinking seventeen year old who just saw the style of it and went, "Cool, I guess." You know, it's not like if I think about like a movie like V for Vendetta, which was a comic book adaptation around the same time. I didn't walk away from that movie and go, "Hmm, was there any politics in that?" Like, I, <laughs> even even as a as an idiot, I <laughs> I got that that film was trying to say certain things, 
it was entirely possible for me as a 17-year-old to walk away from this movie and just go, ah, that was fun and that was cool and I would like to see that again. And not and, so, and, and not, not walk away from it, you know, with any political leanings whatsoever. Are you... I think basically what you're saying here is we're applying postmodern analysis to a film that doesn't require any. No, no. Or at least I'm, doesn't invite any. I'm just... I, I think what I'm saying is that this isn't... I, I think it's undeniable that, that, that this reading is an easy one to land on with this movie. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it overwhelms the movie, and I don't think for a lot of people it is the it is the first thing that you think yeah. about when you and watch this movie. Because and it's questionable is, whether Zack Snyder put it there on purpose, even yes, or whether it, or, think, or, or, or Frank Miller that it was just you know, yeah, or, and, and whether it was whether it was trying to make a point with any of that stuff, both in the source and in the adaptation, or whether it is just kind of incidental and you know it's it's unpleasant and it may be you know some of the stuff maybe reflects some of the some of the leanings that miller has but that he wasn't necessarily trying to make that he wasn't trying to make a point of going (laughs) god fucking hell people from the middle east suck don't they (laughs) i mean he did later write a comic that was basically that well yeah (laughs) but you know what i mean like and and i I, and i can't i can't help but come away from this movie going i think in spite of it all it is a it is a good movie i think it's good i think it's really compelling i think it's really stylish i think each action sequence is really well structured the mm-hmm. script is you know like we could have left we could, we could have left Stephen going for half an hour talking about all of the like the moments that are really fantastic give us a few more Stephen. give us a few more of those great iconic <laughs> moments uh, I love the one when um, the v- Vincent Regan, I think the actor's name is, the father, uh, the captain, you know. Yes. Um, Astinos. I love the scene. Astinos. Um, no, that's his son. I love... it's, it's whoever he is, yeah. So there's the scene where his son gets beheaded and he goes on a little rampage and beheads a few Persians and then he has to get dragged away because his grief is overcome. He's overcome with grief so much that he's making this really weird sort of Ah, 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 noise and he's, he gets dragged away from the fight because he's that to me was just such a potent potent scene I mean I'm not a father but watching that I was just sort of I was aware of how into the moment I was and 300 is a film with a lot of flaws but like all Zack Snyder's films it's a film of peaks and troughs whereas he'll hit you with this really memorable visual moment and it brings me back to this argument I have with friends about films. Would you rather have a film that's a sort of six out of ten all the way through, doesn't really do anything wrong, but doesn't really hit these highs, or would you rather have a Zack Snyder film where there's all these lows and you can read into things and say that, well, I don't like that aspect, I don't like this aspect, completely fairly, but then you have these highs at the same time? I'm not saying there's a right or wrong. I don't know what my answer would be. It's, it's almost like the Superman Returns v. Man of Steel argument where Superman Returns is probably more my idea of a Superman film. But then if you ask me to name what what's your sort of three, four favourite moments from Superman Returns, I would struggle. But then if, <laughs> but if you said to me, name the five where, name, name five mistakes from Well, precisely. But then if it comes to Man of Steel, you could say name five big faults from Man of Steel, and I could name five, I could name ten, but I could also name five <laughs> scenes that really, really work for me and stand out and are memorable. So mm-hmm. I think that I like him, but I'm willing to 
overlook the stuff that I don't like. I'm not talking about his politics. I'm talking about his storytelling in general. Like, I think a lot of Zack Snyder's films, the story would maybe say require 80 scenes and he gives you maybe 70. <laughs> I think there's, I, I think there's something to that moment as well that you're talking about with the with the death of his son, where I think what Snyder really, or what what the film is really able to get across is these ideas, and I think it it's masculinity, but it's hyper masculinity, and mm. and it's you know that like i i think there is there is a there is a version of masculinity presented here which is the version that that a, a broad audience can really buy into you know like my friend saying that's the greatest movie i've ever seen because yeah it's this hyper it's this hyper masculine movie but when his son dies he expresses that emotion and like the like the, the way that that Leonidas is, you know, he's the most heroic, but he is the most thoughtful and he is the most compassionate. And that he, for, for all of this, you know, like for, for all of like, it's men going out to fight to protect. Like he he's the one that has the most respect for a woman in the film. And that, that's and like in his dying moments is is thinking purely of her. Um, yeah, there is, and there is, I, I, you know, it's something that I could, I could, you know, I think um, a vast gamut of men could can can identify with the ideas, uh, the, the ideas of masculinity in this. That you know, it's uh, what what I mean basically is the hard man going to watch Three Hundred, going, oh, "I'm a big, I'm a big hard man. I'm just like Leonidas." <laughs> And, but who, who also, you know, who also really loves it? It's, it's Croydon. Ray, Ray Winston would love this. Is what I'm saying. Um, I think there's there's two really interesting moments with Leonidas. Like just what you're talking about, him being the, the ultra masculine one, is before he kicks the messenger down the well, he looks to his queen for almost like permission to do it. Mm-hmm. For and approval, then, before, yeah, yeah, and before he goes on his um, journey, or before he decides he's going to fight. It's the the scene in the bedroom before the completely unnecessary sex scene. He <laughs> he's almost asking her in a roundabout way, "Do I do this? Do you, do you think yeah, I yeah. should do this?" Because he's he's sort of standing unnecessary but quite welcome <laughs> bum shot, and he's looking out at the moon, and he's sort of thinking. To him, you can tell that he's already sort of made up his mind. I'm going to go and fight these guys, but then he sort of says to her in a roundabout way, "Can I do this? Do you think I should do this?" Yeah. So it's interesting that in the most masculine film of all time that he still defers to his queen, which I liked. He's so naked in that scene. So yes. naked. <laughs> I also the way he's like looking out on the entire city with just his, his dick fully out. It's, it's <laughs> hilarious to me as well. That, <laughs> I mean, between this and Watchmen, how does Zack Snyder make these sex scenes so unsexy? I mean, like, oh. the, like I, I, Gerald Butler looks incredible in this movie. Like, it, it, like he waxes his beard with testosterone in the morning, <laughs> <laughs> and then uses what's left to to uh, oil up his abs. And uh, like, uh, Lena Headey is gorgeous. And then you have this sex scene where, as, as you say. Jerry's got his bum out and Lena Headey's boobs are slow motion jiggling and <laughs> and you're like why is 
why does this make me feel slightly ill? Because these people are so attractive. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> there's never been there's never been anything less erotic than this scene until Night Owl <laughs> fucks up Spectre and Watchmen. <laughs> It's be, it's because like good sex scenes, and there are there have been loads in the history in the history of cinema. But you you always need that you always need the sensuality, and I kind of feel like Zack Snyder has has never shown any uh, any you know he's just he, he he doesn't seem like he's capable of sensuality. That's the you know so he can make something look look. But there is an intent of sexual right sensuality. There is an intent yeah. of it in those scenes. There is, but it's not it's and not there. He can't connect He's it with Kenny the audience. G. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's, yeah, let's put some saxophone over that scene and see how it mm. plays. Um, can I talk about what what I think is one of I, I think one of the reasons maybe this got you know got the green light in the first place and one of the the key influences that we've not talked about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's got to be Lord of the Rings, right? Because Lord of the Rings mm. is mm. is you know the final one of those coming out three years earlier, and the the battle that you know the battle of 300 spartans is basically what if helm's deep with some with some degree of of historical precedent you know if if this if this did indeed really happen but you know and and i think it's a it's a quibble for me and probably lots of other lord of the rings fans that um in the books those elves never turn up and help at Helm's Deep, and it really is this ragtag bunch of that those those few members of the Fellowship with with what's left of Rohan's forces, and and the elves never show up, and it and it and it does have this real three hundred, you know, like they've got this bottleneck. There is a there's a small you know a small weakness in Helm's Deep, which the attacking orcs are able to. Um, are able to exploit to kind of get their, you know, get their foot in in the bat- late in the battle. Um, but what's the what's the? I mean, uh, what's the? I bet you that there that there's a quote from Tolkien saying that he that the the, the three the the, the yeah, the, yeah probably influenced yeah. him for that for that yeah, piece I'd of be, story. I'd, right? I'd be I stunned bet. if there wasn't. Yeah, but it's oh. it's it's uh, it's my favorite passage of the books um it's my favorite sequence in all three lord of the rings movies and then you know to 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 then be rewatching this movie and have faramir narrating the start of it mm. in his very nasal voice um <laughs> um wenham is fantastic um i'd like i got to say like is fast is fastbender bad in this movie because i thought wenham was good but is fastbender bad is this the bad Fassbender performance, or am I just... Am I... I barely noticed it was Fassbender. Always forget. I could see this film a million times, and every time I put it on, I'm like, oh, Michael Fassbender's in this. I but it, it, <laughs> and it kind of doesn't even look like him with the long hair. It's weird. Yeah. 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 But no, yeah, so so with, with Wenham narrating, I just... I, I think that that's part of the success is that, you know, the blueprint for this movie in terms of, like, the broad plot had already been set up by... By the Battle of Helm's Deep, and what and what Snyder does is never give like the Athenians turn up, but they're fucking useless, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> That's another scene that I really like the the whole. Um, I brought more soldiers than you when yes. he says you've not brought enough. Mm. He says, "What soldier? What's your profession? I'm a potter. Mm. What's your profession? I'm a gardener. <laughs> what is your profession?" And they'll go, oh! "That that's a really cool moment." I'm guessing the um, James. That's from the graphic novel. But Stephen, uh, when you... I can't remember to be honest. 
So yeah, Stephen, I wonder when when earlier when you were saying about when I when I look at the film and I don't think, oh, I want to be a Spartan. I kind of think that for all of us, maybe what we want to be is Athenians. It's like we get to be there at that moment of glory. Uh, we, yeah, we're not like I. Th- I think the parallel is that the the Spartans are like the Navy SEALs. They're like the the super highly specifically trained crack team, and we are, we would all be the Athenians walking in and going. This is really cool to watch. You guys are really fucking intense, and you've done this for ages. But but I can see why you're into it. Like, can we can we just play a small part in this? Like, but yeah, like I love the Guardians I love of the Galaxy. Yes, it's like the Guardians, me and the Avengers. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're not as good as you, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I I just wanted to call out Lord of the Rings because I I do think it's. Yeah, I think there's such a close parallel there, and I'd be I'd be stunned if uh, if Wenham hadn't got the gig off the back of it as well. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because Fassbender's character and the I forget the one the name of the other guy that he's friends with, and you were talking about earlier. They have the bromance. Yeah, that is very Legolas and Gimli, isn't it? You know when they're fighting. Yeah, yeah, start. like they're almost like battling for who's got the most kills. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I think we've uh, we've probably nearly reached the end of the road with three hundred. Um, do we have any any final thoughts? Um, are we all, are we all desperate to come back for three hundred Rise of an Empire? Oh, <laughs> I, think we, I think we have to split that into a two parter, right? So the next two episodes are going to be the, the first and second half of Rise <laughs> of an Empire. So much to so much to cover. There's something we haven't mentioned though. Oh, go on, Jerry Butler. Oh my God, he's so good, isn't he, Stephen? It's, he's he's become a bit of a I don't want to use the phrase, use the phrase laughing stock, but on film Twitter nowadays he's become that guy where it's cool to like him being in rubbish movies about fighting the environment and fighting yeah, wind like and Geostorm <laughs> and whatever the one yeah. he was in last year and, and yeah. he has done a lot of nonsense, but I don't think that this film would work without him. He really holds it together, and crucially. I think he brings a tiny little bit of humour when he can. Like my favourite yeah. moment in the whole film is when his men are surrounded, not surrounded, but his men are stabbing leftovers of Persian fighters on the ground. He's chomping an apple and he's saying <laughs> he's going he's to go and talk to Xerxes and he says, well, there's no reason we can't be civil and then tosses the apple away. Just yeah. with this little, this little hint of madness in the eye. And I love that. I think he's, I yeah, think you could he's see... genuinely fantastic in this. He's like oh, yeah. 15 years of career post this have mm-hmm. are well deserved. Yeah. Mm. He, you can see like, we, we, you know, almost in like some kind of, some kind of your uh, Zack Snyder version of this, of this movie, even though it's, this probably is a year version of, of, the, of the Zack Snyder movie. But like he, that, that role would be, would be a po-faced performance. And, yeah. and and as and Stephen, to your point, it's just that fifteen percent or five percent of cheekiness that 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 carries you along. You know, if he was if he was if he was so serious, I, you know, I wonder. I'm thinking about like like um, Russell Crowe and Gladiator. Oh God, is is a more is a much more po face and much more serious dour yeah. performance. Like I think that I think the movie Three Hundred would would collapse under the under the, the under the weight of that, and it wouldn't work. And uh, yeah, Gerard I, Butler, his star, he, as you say, his as Joey says, he he's a star because of this film. This was single film, basically, and the stardom <laughs> continues, and 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 he deserves it. 
I want to quickly defend Russell Crowe in Gladiator, who I think gives the <laughs> gives the performance that that film needs. No, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, like, but you're right. You're right. Is, this, like Russell, this is Russell Crowe in this film. This film, yeah, yeah. Russell Crowe in this film would have been a disaster because it just wouldn't have wouldn't have had that lightness and the charm. Because the style is so heavy, the style is yeah. so serious. Mm-hmm. People, the humans, to, yeah. <laughs> just, to just lighten it up a little bit if they can. And I think I think Fassbender, Fassbender does that as well. And mm-hmm. I used to, I know you, you know, you sort of slagged him off and said he's anonymous. <laughs> yeah, so he's, an, he's anonymous, but uh, I think he's he's yeah. He, I think he lightens it up a bit. Um, I, I just West think I'd like, maybe maybe not maybe. The, oh, I think Dominic, Dominic West is at like he's. He's kind of doing the one note thing. He's his character has mm. one note and he plays it. I, I like. I I just. I think the film gives Jerry Butler so many tools in terms of the character design and every and you know, mm. and 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 the the like plethora of all, uh, like iconic lines that he's given. But mm. he does so much for all of them. I think the film probably benefits from him being largely unknown. That he he kind mm. of it does feel like he's not bringing any baggage to this character. He mm-hmm. is. He is Leonidas. That yeah. is Leonidas. We did, like that's yeah, I, I that's know exactly the point things, I was so. going to make. Yeah, and like, he's Scottish. It's, it's incredible. Like it's <laughs> he's openly that, Scottish. That one yeah. bit is so funny. Like that one. It's just so because it's not. It's they don't do like a Game of Thrones thing where uh, all of the people in this were in this realm of the of, of the of the Game of Thrones world are you know have this the certain accent. Like it's not. It's just you know the Spartans are mostly British. <laughs> yeah. just he's the Scottish. <laughs> He's like aggressively Scottish. It's so fun. It's so good. Can and I just say, even though, sorry, Jim, sorry. That was sorry. I was just going to very quickly say the uh, the decision that had to have been made in a room to mm. say yes. you need to stick with this accent. Yeah. Mm. It's so crucial because again, yeah, it's it's yeah. that it, it it lends the performance just mm. something unique because there's not. I don't know. Like the the only the only parallel I can think of is Mel Gibson in Braveheart, and that's not that's, <laughs> n- that's not the same, is it? <laughs> Even though I'm Scottish, I genuinely don't like when I hear a Scottish accent on a film. I just think a lot of the time it completely takes me out of the film. So my main example, yeah. the one I always use, is Force Awakens. Han Solo. <laughs> You know when he meets the guys, and the it's just yeah. like it really. It's from you know, space Scotland. Yeah, what? And I'm, and I'm Scottish, and I'm saying that. Yeah. And you could use the Doctor Who, the Doctor Who argument of um, every planet as a North or whatever. But I just think there's very few Scottish accents that sound cool on film. Connery being the main one, but I'm so like just what you were saying there. I'm so glad that Butler kept his accent for this because it yeah. would just sound weird and wrong if he was doing some sort of faux English accent. Because are we? His, <laughs> Are we looking forward to Henry Cavill's Scottish accent? Oh, in Highlander. <laughs> in the Highlander remake, yeah. God, I can't, I can't, I cannot imagine. He's got a low bar to clear yeah. after. Uh, yes. Christopher Lambert, yeah. Yeah, he's got a very yeah. low bar to clear. <laughs> and, and, and let us not forget that, of course, uh, Sean himself was playing a Spaniard. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. That's that's probably the franchise better than any to go into with a dodgy accent. Yeah. No, I, I I can't say enough how good I think Gerard Butler is in this movie, and I I would place him in a very similar realm to Jason Statham, where I think yeah, some of the time he is a punchline, 
but I think actually like his value in the movies that he's in is is incalculable. And I'd like there's movies like another movie I hate kind of like I, I really, really don't like ideologically and all the things that it uh, the, the the way it goes about doing what it does. I hate law abiding citizen. But Gerard Butler's so good in that and he gets given such meaty lines. And I remember thinking, walking out of it going, I hated that. That's going to be, everyone's going to fucking love it. It's going to be, it's going to be a massive hit. Um, And I think he's, yeah, I think he's so, he's so reliable in this kind of mode. Struggled with him a bit more when he's in the, the, like when he was in his rom-com phase, but this stuff... He's like a lethal vessel for bad politics. He's just like, oh, we, got some, we got a bad political message. Fucking let's load up the Gerard Butler gun. He could just deliver this shit. He's great. <laughs> he's he's great in the in the, the Olympus has fallen movies as well. Like I just yeah, I think he's he's doing American then those though, right? He's doing I think a, he's kind of a I bad American all, accent those. He's always good value. Okay, so that was uh, our discussion on three hundred. James, do you have a comic book recommendation based on the film? Yeah, is it, so, is, um, it, is it 300? It's not 300. <laughs> I mean, by all means, go and read 300. I think it's it will be interesting. Certainly, I intend to go back and compare the, the film and the comic again. Um, but the I think the comic you should go and read off the back of this is uh, called Three. It's by Kieran Gillen and Ryan Kelly. And it's a historically accurate... Uh, sort of period drama set in Sparta. Um, and it is about three helots who were the slaves that the Spartans kept uh, attempting to escape from the Spartans and being pursued by them. James, it sounds like a real subtweet of a comic book, is that? It is, absolutely. It is one of Kieran's most direct pieces of criticism of another really? comic creator. Like, Kieran has this thing um, of of doing critiques about other comic works. Like he, he wrote a piece about Watchmen by using yeah. Peter Cannon, who was the character that, um, uh, it's gone out of my mind. The villain from Watchmen. Ozymandias? Ozymandias. He wrote a piece. He wrote a comic starring Peter Cannon, who was the character that Ozymandias was based on from Watchmen. That is, you know, in its own way, a commentary on Watchmen. Yeah. So this is this is sort of Kieran's thing. It's one of Kieran's things. So well, I think he's, yeah. he's basically re- he's basically reviewed Britpop for for the last twenty years in various <laughs> yeah. comics, right? Like he, you know, he melds he melds criticism with his with yeah. His fiction. As, as a former career critic, he he melds <laughs> criticism and fiction. But yeah, so go and go and read three. It's a really good comic in its own right, and I also intend to revisit that. Okay, so Reese, uh, you've got a pitch. It's been the pitch for a long time, and you're gonna and and you've you've got a lot of confidence in it, and you're gonna set it to James, Stephen, and I now, and we're gonna all answer it fantastically. Um, yeah. So my, it, uh, I kind of thought we might get into some other stuff this episode. So the the pitch is very simple, very simple, which is Gerard Butler recast him as a superhero or sorry we you know within the superhero universes marvel or dc or whatever go Hercules. and i will st- oh, oh God. <laughs> i was desperate as well i've got it already usually the, usually the guests i give the guest the last slot but steven oh, straight okay yeah no steven go for it you've got it, you've got expand, it expand a bit expand 
Well, I was just, my mind was racing there because I thought these guys know so much about comics. James and Joe are just going to come up with great <laughs> ones. I'm going to be sitting here looking like an idiot because I don't know what I'm talking about. So I raced through all the comic characters I could think of who were sort of vaguely gruff, beardy, big. <laughs> and I suddenly thought of Hercules, who I know nothing about. Like, for example, uh, can someone answer the question? In Justice League, Zack, Zack Snyder's Justice League, when they're having the big, is it the history le- history lesson battle? Yeah. And he fires a big beam. Can Hercules do that? It's something that he can... <laughs> I thought he was just strong. <laughs> um, I mean, he he's actually a better fit for Marvel Hercules. Um, as soon as you said Hercules, I was like, Marvel Hercules, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, that's, that's what I meant. Yeah, that's, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I read a little bit of Marvel Hercules, and he is like... Uh, the, 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 the version that I read was like... Uh, yeah, strong, beardy, gruff, little bit of a himbo. Yeah, absolutely himbo. And it's certainly the three hundred version of Jerry has. Yeah, if you it. if you check in a couple of extra spoonfuls of like you know comedy, that is absolutely Marvel Hercules. My worry would be that yes, fine, three hundred era Butler, perfect for Hercules. But you know, let's let's take Gerard Butler's t shirt off today. Does he still? Does they he can do amazing that? things with CGI. Does he have that still does he? And I, I well, I think Hercules reads um, um, uh, Marvel. Hercules reads a bit younger, and also James, you'll back me up on this. Now he, he now he's now he's he's a he's a queer character, right? He is bisexual, yeah. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure Gerald Butler is ready for you know ready to go down that that train and reads and reads as that either. Well, Stephen, I liked it. <laughs> Joe, yeah. you're up next. Go. Beta, Ray, Bill, boom. Nah. Lots of James planets have a Scotland. Yeah, no, so Joe's, Joe's won. James, who's your, who's your idea? Beta, <laughs> Ray, Bill. Not even heard no. mine. What the hell? Where? Why? Expl- what? <laughs> he's, a, he's a horse. Hey, I'll be honest. I was thinking Stevens. Stevens got it with Hercules, but I was like, "But what if? What if? What if basically Hercules, but a Norse horse?" Okay. Uh, James, I got to say, so we're coming in. There's lots of pros and cons with both of those ideas so far. Uh, I'm really confused emotionally. I'm, I'm kind of what I want. What I want is you, for you to give me a clean something answer. undeniable. Yeah, do you, I, yeah, do I you need want? That. I need undeniable. Do you want the obvious one or the insane one? No, I think I want the obvious one at this point. I've got uh, Okay, he should, he should be, he should be Wolverine. He should Boo. be the Wolverine. Boo. <laughs> it's not okay, an interesting no. choice. It's never going to happen. But the insane one. The insane yeah. one is the Punisher. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah. I like yeah. it more. Intense, yeah. <laughs> violent, getting on a bit. But yeah, still, but, you uh, know, terrifying with it. He should I, be the Punisher. Can I just again you... suggest that what if there was a Punisher in space who was also a horse? <laughs> David I think Wenham that's not has microchip. <laughs> microchip. And a bit more David? chill. David Wenham as microchip. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, God, yeah. Good. I do like that's, that. Did I win? Did I win? Um, I think Stephen wins with the David Wenham as a microchip. I think you, you, Joe and James both lose, but Stephen wins as a pinging off James's James's guess. I, um, I would have chosen uh, Jared Butler as Hercules as the, the best suggestion because it is immediately true. 
He's too old. He's too old. I do, honestly, How old he's is he? Too old. He's what, 70? He's, he is too old. 70? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's 65, 70 years old, I think. I, I, feel, like check, but I, think he's old. I feel like I'll listen. He is 51. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, I wasn't that far off. Do you know how old Hercules is, Reese? <laughs> like 3,000. <laughs> I feel like our listeners are not, are not really going to understand how big of an upset that was but when i said beta ray bill i punched the air with each word such was my certainty that it was the greatest answer that could be given i just can't i just i cannot imagine any actor playing beta ray bill i just cannot (laughs) right i can't understand a that and then how you how you've gotten to that i find that i'm also just trying to will it into existence god it'd be great yeah it's interesting wrap it up guys Yeah. <laughs> this argument is not going to be won on this podcast <laughs> it's Sunday night it's bedtime, goodbye <laughs> okay uh, so that, that was our 300 episode Stephen, thank you so much for joining us um, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you online where they can find your work um, yeah I'm on Twitter at the naked pun and I did used to write for Radio Times, but got let go because of COVID, not to end on a downer, but there's there's no films to get reviewed, so they were like, bye-bye. <laughs> and if you want to listen to Scottish radio, I'm on BBC Radio Scotland talking about films on Thursdays. There we go. Um, and uh, so, yeah, at The Naked Pun, if you want to find Stephen, I'm sure that, yeah, there's there's lots of links forthcoming as well when, when, when content rears its head. Hey, Stephen, films are coming out again. It's looking up. It is, yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to some of them. Black Widow. <laughs> what are we thinking, guys? Are we are we positive about Black Widow? Yeah, I wish it, I'll take anything. I wish it wasn't on Disney Plus, but yeah, I'm. I, oh, I went back to. I'm. I'm going to watch it on Disney Plus, so I'm glad that it is. I uh, speaking of films coming out, I work. I work in the cinema, Stephen, and I was. Mm-hmm. I was put on sale. Of, I was sort of told to put on sale a film. And I was going through the processes, and it was called Gunda. I was like, okay, I was going to put this this for sale. Uh, and I did all the back, boring like back end stuff, and then I was like, oh, I wonder what this film is about. And and it's a black and white film about a, without dialogue about a pig and a and a three legged chicken and a duck. <laughs> and the executive producer is Joaquin Phoenix, <laughs> it's from a Polish director. And I thought. Oh, cool. Yeah, cinema's back. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> cinema's back, yeah. Um, I'm just if at people this... could see Reese's face right now. G-U-N-D-A. If they could see his tears. Come to see at my at my cinema. Gunda. Brilliant. Well, if you'd like to to support the podcast, we will not be covering that over on Patreon. Uh, But you can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. You can uh, subscribe for $3 a month to get access to all of the weekly bonus episodes. This week, we are um, doing a read-along of the Loki comic Agent of Asgard, um, which uh, is in preparation for the upcoming Loki Disney Plus series. Um, If you've enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe on your podcast app of choice you can rate us on um apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from if you want to find us on twitter we are collectively at cineverse i'm at joe cunningham 14 james is at james hunt and reese is at reese if you would like to email us send an email to podcast at cinematicuniverse.com we'll be back in two weeks with another main episode and wait around after the end credits to hear what we'll be covering then 
Thanks for listening. I will see you next time. Goodbye. I've been here before, over and over again, and each time the same question. Is this it? Will this time be the one? And each time the same answer. And I'm just so tired of it. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with The Old Guard. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.